Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We begin today with this unprecedented image, the mugshot of the 45th president. The first mugshot of any current or former president ever in the history of this country. Good morning, everyone. You're with us early. We're glad to have you. It's Friday, August the 25th, and new overnight, there are several fast-moving developments tied to Donald Trump's case in Georgia. The Trump campaign is already raising money off that mugshot. And sources tell CNN that Trump made the decision to look defiant in the photo. Also new overnight, three more of his co-defendants have turned themselves in over the past few hours, including Jeffrey Clark. He's the former DOJ official accused of playing a key role in the effort to overturn the election. We're now awaiting just two more surrenders as we're just hours from that deadline. The first trial in the case is set for October 23rd, 59 days from now. One of the defendants, Kenneth Teesborough, asked for a speedy trial and D.A. Fannie Willis said, game on. She also wants to try all the defendants beginning that day. Also, Georgia's Secretary of State has been subpoenaed to testify against Mark Meadows on Monday. That is when a hearing will be held to discuss whether Trump's former chief of staff can move his case to federal court. And there's one co-defendant who actually had to spend the night in jail, Harrison Floyd, the leader of Black Voters for Trump. He slept over after he failed to negotiate a bond agreement before surrendering. We're going to discuss all of this. CNN This Morning starts right now. This morning, this is the photo you are waking up to, splashed across newspaper and television screens. It is Donald Trump's mugshot at the Fulton County Jail, and it is making the front page across the nation and really around the world. Trump only spent about 20 minutes at the jail last night. He was already, he was arrested. He was booked as inmate P0113589. And he's flaunting this mugshot now. He made a surprise return to Twitter, now known as X. The first time since he was banned after the January 6th insurrection. Trump posted his mugshot with the caption, election interference, never surrender. But that post came about two hours after he actually surrendered his fourth arrest in five months. And new overnight, three more of Trump's co-defendants have turned themselves in, including former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. That means that 17 of the 19 alleged co-conspirators have now surrendered before the deadline. Again, that's noon today. So, as you can see, there is a lot to get to. We're going to start off the program with Nick Valencia. He is at the Fulton County Jail. What a night there last night, Nick. What a night, Poppy. What a night. The scene outside the Fulton County Jail was one for the history books. Donald Trump has been called many things in his lifetime, and now he can be called inmate, adding to that list. A mugshot and inmate number P0113589 will forever be associated with a former president. Donald J. Trump was arrested on state charges related to election subversion in Georgia Thursday. He was booked and released on bond at the Fulton County Jail. 
former president, took to the right-wing network Newsmax to discuss his surrender. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot. That wasn't, didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. And uh, I have to go through a process. It's uh, election interference. Ahead of his surrender, Trump agreed to a $200,000 bond and other release conditions, including not using social media to intimidate co-defendants and witnesses in the case. This is the fourth criminal case filed against the former president this year. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. Trump continues to deny any wrongdoing in this case and the others. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that, as you know. Trump shared his mugshot on his Truth Social and his ex account, formerly known as Twitter, with the words, election interference and never surrender below it. It was his first tweet on X since January 8, 2021, two days after the insurrection. The former president was not the only high-profile person to surrender on Thursday. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows surrendered himself to the Fulton County Jail. He's been charged with violating Georgia's RICO Act and soliciting a public officer to violate their oath. He denies any wrongdoing. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. Just last week, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis charged Trump and 18 co-defendants with meddling in the 2020 Georgia presidential election laws. On Thursday, the district attorney filed a motion requesting a trial date of October 23, 2023. That date was set after Kenneth Chesborough, the co-defendant who is considered the architect of the fake electors plot, requested a speedy trial as his right. His trial is set to begin on that date. Trump's attorneys say he opposes the proposed trial date. And, and it has been a revolving uh, door of activity here outside the Fulton County Jail this week. Just two of the 19 co-defendants remain. The clock is ticking for them to turn themselves in by today's noon deadline. Victor, Poppy. Nick Valencia, thank you so much for being there, not only this morning, but all week for us on this. Joining us now, our national politics team leader for Bloomberg, Mario Parker, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy, and former Manhattan prosecutor Jeremy Saland. Welcome to you all. Patricia, let me start with you. You are uh, there in Georgia, and you were outside of the Fulton County Jail uh, on Rice Street last night. There was chanting, there was singing. Uh, give us an idea of the, um, the environment. What was, what was it like there last night? Well, you know, it was just totally surreal. I would say it was a combination of those old Trump rallies that we used to see with lots of pro-Trump signs, flags, supporters out there chanting his name. And then you almost combine that with what felt like a funeral. We had the former president come in in a huge motorcade with dozens of police officers on motorcycles, uh, multiple uh, black SUVs going in behind the gates, those heavily armored gates of the Fulton County Jail. You could have heard a pin drop when he drove through those gates. It was very quiet, very somber, and he was in and out pretty quickly in about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I would say the rest of the night, people felt pretty shell-shocked about what had happened. Jeremy, explain to people why they might be thinking, why didn't he have a mugshot in the other three? Why didn't he have an inmate number in the other three? What's different about what happened in Georgia last night? 
Well, in Georgia, this is a felony charge. Well, not that the other ones aren't felony charges, but you're required to have that mugshot. You're required to have those fingerprints taken. And in different in certain states, they have their different rules. In Georgia, they'll release those. Many states won't do that. So it's not, there's nothing atypical about what's happening. And I would use the term, it's fairly mundane and normal. He's being treated like everyone else on that front. Yeah. One of the elements of several that's different here from the treatment from the Trump side of this was after the uh, New York um, uh, surrender and the surrender on the first federal charges, there was a Mar-a-Lago event. There was a speech. There were yeah, remarks. that's a great point. Last night, there were a few words on the tarmac, and then he got back on the plane. Yeah, well, it goes to the seriousness of this case, right? Those other cases, in Trump's mind at least, if he wins in 2024 from a political aspect, he can maybe pardon himself. Well, there's no room for him to do that with this particular case. So, A, you see the seriousness of it, right? Recall, Victor, earlier in the week, he was supposed to have this press conference right. at Bedminster that he scrapped as well. So it shows that he's yeah. taking this really very, very seriously. I would just know the state charges, if convicted in New York, he would not be able to, to do away yeah. with either. Um the just if we could say on the politics of this, he didn't give a speech, but he they made T-shirts, thirty-four dollar T-shirts that they're selling. We've seen after every indictment, his polling goes up. Does it go up more now? And that's what they're counting on, right? Because he's blurred the lines essentially between this how his legal how he fights his legal battles and how he wages his twenty twenty four comeback bid. About an hour or so before he turned himself in, there were text messages that his campaign sent out in his voice saying, "This is my last text message to you before I'm arrested." Right? It was a fundraising appeal, the mugshot as well, going back on X, which we know is one of his familiar cudgels in a general election in which to. That was interesting. First in. time since 2021, I think, yeah. he's gone on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. January. Exactly. And while he has true social, this is a powerful weapon for him, right? For him to, again, bring his base in, but also wage mm-hmm. attacks on his, uh, his, his, his rivals. Patricia, beyond uh, Trump's accusations um, of lies about the other states in Michigan and Arizona and Wisconsin, he personalized his fight in Georgia, the videos Um, Focusing in on Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, what does this mean for those people, those voters, for, for Fulton County that this happened last night? Well, it obviously depends on how you feel about President Trump. Donald Trump still certainly has supporters in Fulton County. Those supporters do not believe these charges against him. They have been with him from day one. And as he continues to say this was rigged and stolen, they believe him. However, I think for the rest of Fulton County voters, there has always been a question Are you just allowed to do this? Can you just say the election was stolen when it wasn't? Can you spread rumors? Can you lead to people's death threats? Can you lead to absolute chaos in an entire state for months on end? Well, is there any is there any consequence for that? And so this tells us that, yes, there are um, consequences. No matter what happens with the trial, this is something that I don't think even Fulton County voters expected to see these kinds of consequences. Well, let's talk about those, those voters, because that's what this is really about at yeah. the core of it. And Ruby Freeman, who's become this example of what those smears do to someone's life. I think we have some sound just to remind people of what she and, and Shea Moss endured. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. 
not to target one, but he targeted me. But then, Patricia Murphy, I want you to listen to what Trump said about just 20 minutes inside jail. Here's, here he was. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, it's, uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot. That wasn't, didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. And uh, I have to go through a process. It's uh, election interference. What is your takeaway from that? Just a reminder of sort of the core of this for the people. Well, I would say that um, the message here is that no man is above the law. That is the message that Fannie Willis has said since uh, January of 2021, the message she wanted to send, that it doesn't matter if you are a person living on the streets of Fulton County or if you're the former president, if she believes that you may have committed a crime and she believes she can gather the evidence to prove that, she will bring charges against you. If it's in her county, she'll bring those charges, and she's done that. Mm. So uh, Fonnie Willis gave all of these defendants two weeks. We're coming down to the last few hours. We saw several of the co-defendants turn themselves in overnight, including Jeffrey Clark, who played a major role. He was uh, one of the DOJ officials who tried to push this scheme through. Just a few left. Um, but there's one who's sitting in jail. Um, uh, this is Harrison Floyd. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about what happened overnight and, and what happens if we don't get those last few in the next few hours. Well, anyone who's coming in other than... See those last few. Right. Other than the obvious, you're, you're planning out what your bond's going to be. You're coming to that agreement, that consent bond, and the judge says that's okay. If you're not doing that and you're not surrendering yourself, then the reality of it is a warrant is coming. No one is above the law on that front. And that warrant would authorize law enforcement to make an arrest. And theoretically, if you were out of state, you would get a warrant from that state and they would hold you there until you then brought back to the state of Georgia, which in and of itself could take time. So this is, this is real. This is not pretend. This is not bravado. If you fail to show up, there will be a warrant. They're going to show up. They're not going to take that risk. Mm. We have a lot to talk about ahead, including how quickly this trial might begin. Yeah, That's 59 sure. days from now, the first trial. Yeah. All right. Thank you all. Fulton County's district attorney wants to get Donald Trump's trial underway, as we were saying. 59 days, not 60, so less than two months. Is that possible for a RICO case like this? And just in, an update from Maui. The number of people missing after the wildfires has now dropped dramatically. We'll explain that next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Another chapter in the Georgia 2020 election case will begin on Monday. So that is when lawyers for former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows are going to argue before a judge that his case should be moved out of state court and into federal court. And that matters a lot. Meadows faces two felony counts for his alleged role in trying to overturn the election results in the state. His mugshot released just hours before Trump's on Thursday. Uh, back with us, Patricia Murphy is with us, also joining us, criminal defense Attorney and former prosecutor for Fulton County, Clint Rucker, also still at the table, Jeremy Saland. Appreciate it, guys, very much. Um, we were just talking about this in the break, Jeremy, about why moving to federal court. We won't know on Monday, but you think there's a good chance that this thing stays for Meadows, maybe Trump, et cetera, in state court, which is maybe more precarious for them. Well, it's definitely more precarious and their exposure is more significant as well. But as we know, it's a five-year minimum if convicted. But keep in mind, it's not as not the issue is not whether or not Mark Meadows was an officer of the federal government. 
Uh, the question really becomes, as that officer, was what he was doing part of his role? In other words, was this persistent, pardon me, consistent with him being the chief of staff and counting electoral votes, challenging electoral votes, challenging electors, challenging the state of Georgia? That's not his role. That's not his role. Mm-hmm. There are people who have that role. That is not his. So that's the problem. All you need is a colorable defense. You don't have to say What does that, that mean? So it, it doesn't have to be the defense that is going to win unequivocally. But on its face, that is not your job. What he's doing is well beyond, and that's where it becomes problematic. How much do you think we'll learn on Monday uh, beyond what's in the indictment? And there may be some evidence that we hear in trying to keep this in state court. Yeah, but I, I, I think it's going to be really tight because yeah. you don't want to have a trial within a trial. So you may learn, and we know people are being subpoenaed. We know the, the chief, uh, we know probably uh, from the State Department of Florida. Pardon, yeah, Secretary of State, uh, uh, Brad Raffensperger. Correct. So we know that there will be evidence. But Fannie Willis does not want this to expand beyond the scope of that hearing. Mm-hmm. But then you're creating too much material later on, potentially, too, for impeachment to challenge those witnesses later on. So I expect it to be very limited. Yeah. So, Clint, in your former role, you spent a fair amount of time, I'd assume, right, working with clients, et cetera, in the, in the jail there, in the Fulton County Jail. Um, you heard Trump say it was a terrible experience. I mean, he was in and out in, in 20 minutes or so. What is, what's your takeaway from last night to see, for the first time ever, a former president of the United States go through this process? Right. Uh, well, first of all, good morning, you guys. Morning. And thank you for having me. Uh, I want to tell you that, uh, listen, um, the former president's experience uh, for the 30 years that I've been a practicing attorney here in Fulton County uh, was one of the smoothest uh, that I have ever witnessed. Um, By all accounts, he was uh, perhaps inside of the actual facility for less than 30 minutes, which is uh, unprecedented, uh, in my opinion. Uh, But given his status, uh, I certainly understand Uh, the concerns of the sheriff, the concerns of the Secret Service uh, to make sure that uh, this process, which uh, is the same process that each and every defendant who's charged with a crime in Fulton County goes through, was uh, smooth, seamless and uh, and has a huge safety concern. So Mm -hmm. uh, I I understand his comments, but uh, certainly for most defendants, uh, they don't get the same treatment. Clint, I want to stay with you on uh, this trial for Kenneth Cheeseboro, starting, as we've said, in 59 days, and uh, what that takes, what inside the office that preparation looked like now. I mean, the the original request was for March of next year. That was unlikely from everything we heard. And now this first case, not all 19, but this one starts in fewer than two months. What's it look like inside the uh, the DA's office? Right. Right. Well, let me tell you, we are going to witness uh, a very high stakes level of chess that'll be played by uh, participants on both sides. Uh, We're going to see lawyering at its best, Mm. and it's already started. We've seen moves made by the district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Uh, We've seen moves made by various defense counsel. It's going to continue. The move to file a a demand for speedy trial is ingrained in our Constitution, and it puts the state in a posture that the clock is ticking. Uh, A failure to bring a trial within the prescribed period of time, which for for us here in Georgia, the statute is very clear. It's two terms of court. Each term is two months each. 
And so the clock is ticking for the DA's office to get prepared and get ready for trial. I will give you this insight, though, having worked there for 25 years uh, and worked with Fonnie Willis, that team is already prepared. They were prepared for trial the day after the indictment came down. They've got their witnesses lined up. They've got their trial notebooks prepared. And certainly by that October date, which the district attorney has now countered the defense move for Cheeseboro, they'll be ready. You know, Patricia, one thing that's so interesting about this case, too, if you do get all 19, you know, tried together, like six of them are lawyers. Um, and so that just makes it very interesting as they're making these legal arguments to get moved to federal court, to get the defendant's right to a speedy trial, et cetera. I want everyone to listen to what one of John Eastman, who is a lawyer for Trump and one of the real architects of the fake elector scheme, what his lawyer, Harvey Silverglade, told R. Jake Tapper yesterday about why Eastman, he thinks, deserves a totally solo uh, look at everything. Eastman is in a very different position from every other defendant in that he was acting as a lawyer giving legal advice. Uh, he was not part of a conspiracy, assuming there even was a conspiracy. We are going to move to sever his case from the others and move for a severed trial, which means we want to be tried alone. And we believe that the trial of Eastman alone will take about three weeks. Patricia, don't things like that, moves like that, slow all of this down when you're trying to get to trial in 59 days? Not to mention, by the way, the jury process, picking a jury that's going to be long. Um, doesn't that slow things down? Well, I think just the very nature of the fact that there are 19 defendants with 19 separate counsels and 19 separate perspectives about what's best for their own clients, I think that has every potential to slow, thing down, slow things down as well. It does raise huge questions for the role of lawyers and their uh, clients and exactly what is uh, something that would be considered criminal conduct. But John Eastman wasn't just giving legal advice. He also appeared remotely at a state Senate hearing here in Georgia. His words carry significant weight. So he wasn't simply sending emails and having meetings with Donald Trump. He was playing a public role in a public hearing here in Georgia mm -hmm. and giving advice to uh, state senators that even the Department of Justice at the time was saying was inaccurate and false. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeremy, is there any benefit to uh, any of these defendants to be tried with other co-defendants? We're hearing about these efforts to sever and be tried independently. But do you see any pairings here that make sense from a defense perspective? If I'm on the defense team for many of these individuals, especially the lower people on the proverbial food chain, I want to separate and sever myself. I don't want to be part because there's so much more conduct well beyond that I was knowledgeable about, certainly well beyond that I may have taken a part in. So it makes sense for them to try to sever. That becomes somewhat of a nightmare to a certain extent for the prosecution because a lot of the overlap, even if it isn't exactly the same testimony and evidence, you're going to have to do that multiple times. You don't want to do that and give so many bites of the apple for different defenses. It also might not be 19 defendants when they reach trial. If yeah. she can get some to flip, you might have a much smaller mm -hmm. pool here. Absolutely. And that may be in part some of the strategy for the people at yeah. the bottom of that pyramid, because I don't want that five years in prison if I'm a small piece to a much no. bigger puzzle. All right. Thank you so much for the expertise, guys. Just ahead, what U.S. Intel is now saying about the Russian mercenary leader Prigozhin and that plane crash near Moscow. Overnight, Maui County updated the number of people unaccounted for after the Lahaina wildfire, and this number is far less than previously estimated. 
Officials say 388 people have been verified as missing with the FBI compiling the list of names. More than 1,700 others originally reported as missing have been found safe. They're well. Maui County is now suing several local and state utilities for not doing enough to prevent those fires. A lawsuit claims the companies ignored high wind warnings and then failed to power down their equipment when the blazes broke out. An early U.S. intelligence assessment says the downing of that plane carrying Russian mercenary boss Evgeny Prigozhin was deliberate and that the goal was indeed to kill him. Vladimir Putin speaking out for the first time after his death, calling Prigozhin a talented man who, quote, made serious mistakes. They, they were the Russian president's first comments, as I mentioned, since his presumed death on Wednesday. Listen to this. I knew Prigozhin for a very long time, since the early 90s. He was a man of difficult fates. This comes exactly two months after Prigozhin led a brief armed uprising against Russia's military leaders and his comments condemning them for months before that. Let's go to Fred Plekton, who has the reporting this morning. I mean, it's really two. Both things are interesting. It's really interesting to hear from Putin. And the the U.S. intelligence assessment is also fascinating. Well, I think the U.S. intelligence assessment is absolutely fascinating because there's so much speculation poppy out there as to what exactly brought this jet down. And once again, the U.S. saying that it was deliberate, but the U.S. also saying that there's no indication that, for instance, a surface-to-air missile may have been fired at the plane. So possibly that something on board the plane caused that plane to crash. But at this point in time, of course, still very early in any sort of investigation, very difficult to tell. And then we had Vladimir Putin, whom we just saw there, Looking like someone who wasn't exactly devastated by all this, he did express his condolences, not specifically to the family of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but he said to all of those who were on board that plane, he then sort of in passing mentioned that there were a lot of people from Wagner who appear to have been on that plane. He then did talk more about Yevgeny Prigozhin. I want to listen into a little bit more of what Vladimir Putin said in those remarkable uh, remarks. He made serious mistakes in life. And he achieved the results needed both for himself and when I asked him about it, for a common cause. Here he was only yesterday, as far as I know, returned from Africa, met some officials here. So the extremely important thing uh, about all that is that it, Vladimir Putin's narrative since uh, the uprising that Yevgeny Prigozhin um, launched two months ago was that, yes, he is someone who obviously did a lot of Russia for Russia mm-hmm. in Ukraine, but also someone who made a lot of money doing it. So sort of trying to dispel any sort of notion that this might have been some sort of hero. And there we heard those remarks there really just talking in a very matter of fact way right. about Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yeah, that was so interesting to watch and hear from him in that way. But we, so we know the initial U.S. intelligence assessment, but Russia is investigating this and they're going to be the only mm. ones really, too. So, I mean, should people have faith that we'll get really direct answers on this from them? It, yeah, it's very difficult to, to tell at this point in time. Vladimir Putin also, by the way, in that same sort of interview that he gave there in that setting, also said, look, there's an investigation ongoing and that he was very sure that the truth would come to light. But of course, it is very difficult to tell uh, fr- from our vantage point uh, here and really fr- from, from inside Russia as well. Mm-hmm. They have said that they have taken the bodies they've recovered from the crash site uh, to the main forensics lab there. And they're obviously they're, in, they're checking the wreckage as well. But the big question, of course, is going to be how transparent is that investigation going to be? So 
certainly doesn't look as though any international investigators or any Western investigators are going to be taking part in that investigation. And then also another big question, by the way, is, is anybody from the maker of that jet from Embraer going to be there on site to check as well? At this point in time, it doesn't look as though that's going to be the case. And if you look at the sort of vibe in Russia right now, Poppy, it doesn't look as though people are really looking for that investigation to bring very much to light. Some of the few officials that are commenting are essentially saying that they did see this coming for Yevgeny Prigozhin, Poppy. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Team Trump is wasting no time trying to raise money off his fourth arrest. More on his mugshot merch. Mugshot merch. We're there now. All right. And Vivek Ramaswamy apparently feeling very confident after his first Republican presidential debate. Why he says he thinks he's going to win the 2024 election in a landslide. Donald Trump is already using his mugshot to raise money for his campaign just hours after his arrest last night in Georgia. The former president posted the booking photo to Truth Social and, by the way, to Twitter, now known as X, writing never surrender, even though he did, in fact, surrender, by the way. On his way back to New Jersey from Atlanta last night, his campaign started selling these $34 T-shirts with Trump's mugshot on them. Let's talk about all of this, where it goes from here. National Politics Team Leader for Bloomberg, Mario Parker, back at the table. Politics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy, and White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, Akela Gardner. Uh, Mario, let me just start with you. You've got all of this now. Um, he said it was a terrible experience, but he's capitalizing on this terrible experience. To what end? Yeah, well, talking to his campaign earlier this week, they said, we asked them this very question about how they're fighting these legal battles. They say, essentially, they're trying to turn lemons into lemonade. That's essentially the process. Whatever they're given, they're trying to capitalize off of it. Again, you saw the the T-shirts that you all just put up as well. So they were mobilized. there's more than that. There's water bottles. Mugs. Long sleeve T-shirts. And apps. And, and there will be more, right? And essentially, he sent out an email to his donors, says those small donors, in denominations of $3,300 with his mugshot, right? So if you clicked on, if you were curious, a Trump supporter, and you clicked on that, you had the option to give him between $24 and $3,300 as well. So, I mean, this kind of goes back to, again, again, the blurred lines between his political fight and his legal challenges. And Patricia, this merch will sell. If you look at the history after the search of Mar-a-Lago and all of the indictments, there were surges of fundraising, surges of support. And now this gives those those supporters an opportunity to own some of this support, to show it, to to tangibly touch how much they uh, support him. Let's show also Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm. She's trying to get in on this, too. Overnight, she tweeted a photoshopped mugshot. Uh, because she, I guess, in solidarity with Donald Trump, has hashtag MAGA mugshot now. Um, what, do you, what do you see here now with the capitalizing off of this historic moment financially and politically for those who stand by him? Yeah, well, first of all, we know he's going to need the money. I mean, he is using a good bit of this money to pay his own legal bills, and he's also trying to finance his national presidential campaign, so he needs the cash. I think that's pretty obvious. But at the same time, he's also telling his supporters, he's been saying this rhetorically all along, that they're coming after me because they really want to come after you. He's now bringing them into that fight and putting them on his own defense team. And the last message he sent before going in for his mug 
mugshot uh, was to say, I need your help in this fight and a click to a donation link um, to say, I'll never surrender, but I need your help and telling them I need you to start funding this for me because they're coming after all of us. Um, It's working very well as well. We've seen the results in his polling. His polling has jumped seven points in Iowa since these indictments came down against him in Fulton County. So I think so far, turning the lemons into lemonade politically and financially is working for him legally. We're going to have to see. Kayla, on that debate stage two nights ago, uh, six of the eight Republicans said they would support Trump even if he were convicted. But listen to this from uh, Republican Congressman Ken Buck. This was interesting, talking about his support for Trump, but where that would end. Let's play it. I don't think any of these cases will go to trial before uh, the election. I don't think that the appeals will be heard. So there won't be a final uh, uh, judgment on these cases, certainly before the election. Um, But I will not support a convicted felon for the position of president of the United States, regardless of who that person is. Notable, right, Michaela? It is notable, especially because many of the candidates on Wednesday committed to supporting Trump regardless of that outcome, regardless of whether he is convicted or not. But I think the big question here is if these trials do happen next year, they do happen during this campaign season, will that affect Trump's support among voters if he is not able to get out there to places like Iowa, to places like New Hampshire, and really court these voters? And from the Biden's perspective, this is really an advantage for them because they are able to show this split, this split screen, this contrast, and show that without commenting directly, that they can show their president doing the day-to-day duties of the presidency, campaigning as normal, and showing Trump having to deal with these legal issues, having to go to court, having his mud shot taken, and they're very comfortable with that spring spring. Mario, staying with the campaign, uh, we heard from uh, Vivek Ramaswamy about his chances, he believes, if he makes it to the general. Let's watch. I expect to be the next president. I expect to win in a landslide. But I will require, respectfully, each of those people to play their respective roles in our national revival as well in some way, because this is a team sport. He expects to win the general by a landslide, but he's 40 points behind or so from uh, Donald Trump in the primary. Has the race been realigned at all over the last 36 hours, seeing the debate and the arrest? It has in some ways. And Ramaswamy also said something else that was quite notable. This is a tame sport, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that he's been championing his electability is because he's occupying the same lane as Donald Trump. Some of his rivals are saying maybe there's a little bit too much coziness there, right? The Trump campaign immediately after the debate the other day in Milwaukee, the surrogates were really championing Ramaswamy's performance, right? But because it's a way for him, for Trump to use Ramaswamy's campaign as a cudgel essentially against Ron DeSantis. They undercuts his campaign as well. And so in terms of how this shifted at all, well, I mean, Donald Trump is up 40 points. He's hoping that he gets another polling boost from this. You've got DeSantis losing altitude and you do have Ramaswamy who took up a lot of time at the debate kind of surging there. Uh uh, so he is a tech entrepreneur. That's how he made all this money. Sort of a remarkable business story, American dream story. Fellow, uh, fellow tech entrepreneur Mark Cuban, Akela, had this to say. Let's pull up his tweet. Uh, if we can read it, he said, I thought the guy was fascinating. Jobs, he's talking about Steve Jobs, said everything is a remix. This guy is trying to remix Trump. 
It's like he studied the Trump playbook and decided he could remix it by just be, be by, by being just as slick and having a better vocabulary. Is that the play? Something interesting about Ramaswamy is he has always reminded me of Andrew Young in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And we saw Andrew Young recently say that he thought Ramaswamy could surge, um, unsurprisingly, fittingly seeing something in himself as well. But something that Ramaswamy has talked about consistently is he believes being an outsider, being this biotech entrepreneur, gives him a strength. But again, that is the lane that Trump has won on. He has won on his ability to say that he's an outsider, that he is not innate to politics. And Ramaswamy clearly believes that he can do the same thing here. But again, that lane is already occupied. And Ramaswamy has been one of the fiercest defenders of Trump so far in this race. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you all. Donald Trump back in New Jersey this morning. We'll get the latest live from outside his Bedminster Golf Club. That's a hit. Plus, Americans reaching the tipping point, literal, with tipping. I'll explain ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Everywhere you go these days, you're being shown a screen, asking you to leave a tip, often with the employee standing a foot from you. Now, this barrage of tipping requests is leaving a lot of people stressed, a little confused on whom to tip and how much. But some workers say that extra 15 or 18 or 20 percent is the only way they make ends meet. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz reports. This screen is stressful for many. Does the flip of the screen feel like a lot of pressure? It does, and they give you options, like 10, 15, 20, even with, like, Uber, Dash, yeah. and, like, Grubhub, all of it. Like, everything's tip, tip, tip. Do you think that tipping has gotten out of control? Yes. Tips are part of American culture, meant to be a thank you for good service. But today, more and more Americans are confronted with the question, would you like to add a tip? It is tricky everywhere, right? Like, if you're at a coffee shop, if you're at the hairstylist, if you're coming out of a taxi, like, I, I don't know the rules then, and I often don't know what to tip. A recent study found that in a high number of cases, participants who were presented with a tip screen had more negative emotions to the payment experience than those that didn't. And it wasn't even a real-world scenario. Let's say you go to a coffee shop and all they do is just twist around the, the laptop. It's like, why am I tipping? But the small group we spoke to said more often than not, they do end up tipping. I put a dollar or two. I don't mind. As, as long as, like, you know, it's not a lot, I'll just, I'll just put it because I don't mind. This is, at the end of the day, I'm helping out, you know, other people. This is Provisions on State, a butcher shop. There's no table service, no cooking or serving. Yet, they'll ask you if you'd like to tip. A flip screen in a butcher shop. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yes. Um, How'd you decide to do that? These men and women have a knowledge base that they're sharing and taking care to share with the guests that come through the door. And they're not pressured to tip, but they want to because they're paying for a service provided. Does anyone have any knife work I can grab? Emily Mingrone owns the butcher shop and two restaurants in New Haven, Connecticut. At the restaurants, her front-of-house staff make the state's tipped minimum wage, $6.38 an hour. Tips bring them to $40 an hour on average. But the back-of-house staff make half that and aren't eligible for tips. This movement to get rid of the tipped minimum wage, are you for it, against it? Um, I'm against it, and I think, frankly, it's kind of clueless. 
Eight states have abolished the tipped minimum wage, which in some is as low as $2.13 an hour. The National Restaurant Association is fighting against it, calling it a top issue. That's money that's going to come out of my pocket, take away from the people that aren't getting tipped. I would need to raise my prices, which then causes pushback from the guests. But the group One Fair Wage is moving legislation and ballot measures to end the tipped minimum wage in 25 other states, including Illinois. That's how I live, is with tips. Destiny Fox works in two Chicago restaurants. She's saving up for school. She makes just above the state's tipped minimum wage, taking home $9.40 an hour. Tips add 80% to her take-home pay. Without it, it wouldn't give me the means to, um, to live, to, to, to pay my bills, to, to eat, and to do the things that I'm planning on doing, school. And, I mean, it's, uh, it's everything. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, CNN, New York. A hotly debated topic, and we're not going to have that debate no, right now, Victor Black. But well, we had it in the commercial, yes. but it was a great report. It was a good one. Vanessa. All right, it is the historic image seen around the world this morning. Just ahead, Donald Trump sharing a snapshot. It's a mugshot that most people would not share. Plus, in Fulton County, they want Trump's sweeping election subversion trial to kick off less than two months from now. Is that too soon? We begin this morning with unprecedented an unprecedented image, the mugshot of the 45th president, the first mugshot of any current or former president of the United States. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us on this Friday, August the 25th, and new overnight. There are several fast-moving developments tied to Donald Trump's case in Georgia. The Trump campaign already raising money off this mugshot, and sources tell CNN that Trump made the decision to intentionally look defiant in that photo. Also new overnight, three more of his co-defendants have turned themselves in over the past few hours, including Jeffrey Clark. He's the former DOJ official accused of playing a key role in the effort to overturn the election. We're now awaiting just two more of those co-defendants to surrender. The deadline is just six hours away. The first trial in the case is now set for October 23rd. One of the defendants, Kenneth Cheeseborough, asked for a speedy trial and D.A. Fannie Willis said, let's go. She also wants to try all the defendants beginning that day. Georgia's Secretary of State has been subpoenaed to testify against Mark Meadows this Monday. That's when a hearing will be held to discuss whether Trump's former chief of staff can move his case to federal court. And there's one co-defendant who actually had to spend the night in jail, Harrison Floyd. He's the leader of black voters for Trump. He slept over after he failed to negotiate a bond agreement before surrendering. We are going to cover all of this this morning. CNN This Morning starts right now. You know, if you think about it, it was just five months ago that we were talking about maybe one indictment, maybe two, maybe three, and now it has been four. And this one is different because this comes with uh, a mugshot. Fingerprints. An inmate number. Yeah. Quite a night. A moment of history. For sure. So this morning you're waking up to that moment of history. Former President Trump's mugshot is splashed across newspapers and television screens. His booking photo at the Fulton County Jail on all of these front pages, not only in the United States, but around the world. Trump was only at the jail in Atlanta for about 20 minutes. He was arrested. He was booked as inmate P0113589. Trump is already flaunting this mugshot. 
he made a surprise return to Twitter, now known as X, for the first time since he was banned after the January 6th insurrection and then reinstated by Elon Musk last year. Just two hours after he surrendered, Trump posted his mugshot with the caption, Never Surrender. We have a lot to get to. Let's start with Nick Valencia at the Fulton County Jail, where the former president actually surrendered. Nick, good morning to you. Good morning, Victor. The scene outside the Fulton County Jail was one for the history books. Donald Trump has been called many things in his lifetime, and he can now add inmate to that list. A mugshot and inmate number P01135809 will forever be associated with the former president. Donald J. Trump was arrested on state charges related to election subversion in Georgia Thursday. He was booked and released on bond at the Fulton County Jail. The former president took to the right-wing network Newsmax to discuss his surrender. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot. That wasn't, didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. And uh, I have to go through a process. It's... uh, election interference. Ahead of his surrender, Trump agreed to a $200,000 bond and other release conditions, including not using social media to intimidate co-defendants and witnesses in the case. This is the fourth criminal case filed against the former president this year. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. Trump continues to deny any wrongdoing in this case and the others. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that, as you know. Trump shared his mugshot on his Truth Social and his ex account, formerly known as Twitter, with the words, election interference and never surrender below it. It was his first tweet on X since January 8, 2021 two days after the insurrection. The former president was not the only high-profile person to surrender on Thursday. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows surrendered himself to the Fulton County Jail. He's been charged with violating Georgia's RICO Act and soliciting a public officer to violate their oath. He denies any wrongdoing. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. Just last week, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis charged Trump and 18 co-defendants with meddling in the 2020 Georgia presidential election laws. On Thursday, the district attorney filed a motion requesting a trial date of October 23, 2023. That date was set after Kenneth Chesborough, the co-defendant who is considered the architect of the fake electors plot, requested a speedy trial as his right. His trial is set to begin on that date. Trump's attorneys say he opposes the proposed trial date. And more activity overnight as the uh, co-defendants continue to turn themselves in, including former Department of Justice official Jeffrey Clark. Two co-defendants remain and they have just hours left to surrender. Fonnie Willis has given the uh, noon deadline today for that to happen. Victor, Poppy. Nick Valencia, outside the jail force. Thank you. So a lot to get to with our team, National Politics Team Leader for Bloomberg, Mario Parker, with us at the table, along with political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy, former Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Jeremy Saland, and CNN contributor and former Georgia State Senator, who also testified, we should note, in this probe for the grand jury, Jen Jordan. Great to have everyone. Appreciate you being here, Jen. 
let's just sort of full circle for you. You were a state lawmaker in the room when people like Rudy Giuliani came down and perpetuated lies and falsehoods uh, about what happened in Georgia. Then you're testified before the grand jury, and now you see Trump arrested, booked, mugshot. Surreal? Well, it, it feels a lot or better. too real. Well, it feels a lot better on this end than it did in the beginning. I mean, the surreal part was when um, they actually came down to Georgia and, and presented um, basically a false narrative. And so now, you know, for, it feels like for two years there's been kind of this national gaslighting um, that what you saw wasn't real. You know, I didn't say that. Um, but, but the video doesn't lie. And, and we all know what we saw and what we heard. Um, and I was just glad that the grand jury agreed, you know, that there were laws broken. And now he's actually going to be held accountable. And no matter what happens with respect to a jury trial, at the end of the day, he's been indicted. That, that is a huge thing. It, it is such a big deal for the prosecutor to, he, to have even brought this case and took an immense amount of courage. So um, it is very real, and it's something that we need to keep watching. But um, yesterday was a really historic day, and, and, not, and not in a good way, right? Yeah. You should note there's a presumption of innocence for any defendant Absolutely. before they go through a, a jury trial yeah. of their peers. And, Mario, th- this morning there will be news anchors around the world mm-hmm. reading over that mugshot in a myriad of languages, reading that inmate number. Um, and the president's campaign, they're exploiting it, they're selling it, they are making some money off of it because he will need it. Put the, the, the photograph into context for us. Yeah, well, they're, they're going to try to wring as much juice out of this as they possibly can and signal, at least to their supporters, uh, that he's fighting for you, that this is a political... There's a, there's a double standard here. This is election interference. He needs your help. He needs you to galvanize and get behind him as well. So, again, the campaign is taking lemons, trying to make lemonade out of this, trying to... I mean... This is the hand that they've been dealt. So they're trying to use it for whatever they can to just try to capitalize off of it. And so far, it's been working, if you look at the polls, at least. Trisha, I think our colleague Stephen Collinson, as he always does, frames this so well. Let me read people part of his column this morning. For a man who built his legend through paparazzi snaps in New York gossip columns and who prizes Time magazine bearing his face, the Georgia mugshot, for all its indignity, represents yet another new frontier of notoriety— But for a nation still entangled in recriminations and fury whipped up by Trump, the photograph, which flashed immediately around the world, represents a special kind of tragedy. Quite a juxtaposition of then and now. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's just another piece of this story that I think many of us never expected to see. It just feels so surreal, having covered the Trump campaigns in 2015, his early support, how much um, his crowds just adored him. But then watching the complete chaos that followed here in Georgia in 2020 because of the actions of Donald Trump and the Trump campaign, um, seeing this mugshot feels like another chapter in a book that just will not end. This campaign has not ended here in Georgia for the last three years. Obviously, we see it's going to continue. Um, But in terms of how iconic that photo is, we now have his supporters in Georgia 
photoshopping themselves into mugshots, Fulton County mugshots, putting those on Twitter and calling them MAGA mugshots and saying that it, now it's on. So he has galvanized his supporters even further. That's going to be a huge problem if he makes it to a general campaign. But so far right now, his base is sticking with him more than they ever have. We can put one of those up. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she tweeted mm-hmm. out uh, a photoshopped mugshot with the hashtag uh, MAGA mugshot. Jeremy, uh, you've been shaking your head as that was described. What are you, what are you thinking? It's, it's deplorable. It's a mockery of justice. It shows the insanity, or for lack of a better term, of people who are so lost in their obsession with Donald Trump and this theory that the election was stolen. And I, I, saying pathetic is not strong enough. It's just really sad. He, as you pointed out, Poppy, he's innocent until proven guilty. That's not the issue here. But to stand behind in such a way, to make excuses in such a way blindly, that's not what this is about. Hold the prosecution to their burden. But don't don't just jump on this bandwagon for a political future or gain. All of the focus, understandably, is on Trump. Yeah. Right. And the mugshot, et cetera. Mark Meadows to an extent after that. But let's not forget that uh, Jeffrey Clark surrendered overnight, too. And he was working at the Department of Justice and within government, the Department of Justice, and yet is accused of working to perpetuate these lies and undo what the voters had done. That that is treason. For, for, you know, that is would, not what he's charged with. No, no, that's not. I'm showing from just a, a general thought process here. Uh, yes, you know, again, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. But now that he's at that point where he has to face these charges, he's trying for removal as well to get this to federal court. And as we discussed earlier, there, yes, he was a federal officer at the time that he's alleged to have committed these acts. But the next question is, is what he did, was that in furtherance of his role in the Department of Justice? And the argument is that it was not. Therefore, it stays with the state and it can be prosecuted in this case for a larger RICO crime. So we heard from, in control room, let me know if we have the sound of, of uh, the former president uh, describing his terrible experience ready. Um, and Jen, I'll bring that to you. Uh, I want you to listen to what the, the former president said about while he was there at Rice Street. And then we'll talk about contrasting that with uh, the experience of some of the people he targeted uh, over these last several years. Let's play it. Terrible experience. Uh... I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot. That wasn't, didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. And uh, I have to go through a process. It's uh, election interference. He was in and out in 20 minutes. Um, But if you contrast that with some of the people he focused on, the individuals, Ruby Freeman, Shea Mm -hmm. Moss over the last several years, who said that, they could not go to grocery stores. They were afraid to go out. People came to their homes. What do you hear there in the president's description of his experience? I just don't think he gets it. And I think, you know, when we see the Marjorie Taylor Greene MAGA mugshot, there seems to be a real disconnect from reality. Look, Rice Street is, is a jail that is awful. No right? question. People are dying there because the conditions are so absolutely deplorable. So the fact that he basically got this this great treatment, he comes in 20 minutes in and out, right, Um, done and done, and and somehow that was awful and bad, when the reality is people that 
get booked every day there and that have their mug shots taken and that actually have to be in jail there, this is very, very serious. Yeah. And so, you know, for all of these people doing these MAGA mug shots, for whatever reason they're doing it, they just have no understand what this really stands for. I mean, this, this is not good, right? He is in significant legal trouble. And so whether he thinks this is more of a political thing that he needs to massage or not, as a lawyer, um, he needs to stand down and really focus on his defense because he is facing serious allegations um, that could end him up with serious time in prison. And that mugshot's not going to really mean anything at the end of the day if he's locked up. Can I just ask, because you know Georgia so well, if, if Trump is convicted on these charges in state court, if it doesn't get removed to federal, would he go to that jail first? D yeah. That yes. one that yes. he was in last he, he would be He would be held there um, until they send him to whatever prison um, he is then if he assigned got jail time. to, if okay. he got jail time. Thank you. Our Fulton County District Attorney wants to get Donald Trump's trial underway in 59 days. How is that possible for a case of this magnitude? Also this morning, we do have an update for you from Maui. The number of people missing after the wildfires there has dropped significantly. We're going to tell you what it is and we'll explain why. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, I thought it was, uh, as with most things Trump does, carefully staged. They must have thought about what look they wanted. He could have smiled. He could have looked benign. Instead, he looks like a thug. That was Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, talking about this historic mugshot. Trump was arrested, booked, photographed, fingerprinted, now has an inmate number. He was then released under a bond agreement. He did not pay the full $200,000. Instead, he used a bail bonding company. Joining us now, criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor in Fulton County, Clint Rucker. Um, Jeremy Saland and Jen Jordan are back with us. Clint, I'm, I'm starting with you because you're joining the conversation. Uh, for the sheriff who said that um, until somebody tells him different, the president, former president, is going to be treated like everybody else. How close to everybody else was this process for Trump? Well, again, uh, good morning and thank you for having me. Uh, I will tell you that um, the uh, former president was treated uh, like every other defendant in as much as he was required to uh, post a bond to actually appear personally uh, at the Fulton County Jail and go through the normal booking process, which included the surrendering of his fingerprints and the taking of a mugshot photo. The mechanism for accomplishing that, though, was quite unusual, and uh, in as much as his status as the former president presented certain security concerns, and so uh, they were able to work out that protocol. But uh, in as much as we are now able to see, uh, unfortunately, a former elected president of the United States uh, being booked and charged with a felony and uh, have his mugshot uh, photo plastered across uh, every newspaper uh, yeah. almost in the world is um, really tragic. It is sort of so we just got the papers. They weren't even here by the time the show started early at five. But here's a Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch, Wall Street Journal. Trump's right on the front there. A little smaller on the Times, Washington Post, same thing. And this is going to be not just here, but around the world. Jeremy, let's just push forward to Monday. Mark Meadows goes before a judge, wants to get this thing moved to federal court. Um, and that would and, and Trump would want that, too. So where does that go on Monday? 
Meaning, where, so there will be a hearing what on... What happens okay. Monday, and when do we know the outcome? So there will be a hearing on Monday, and there are going to be witnesses called on Monday. This is not going to be just some light hearing. It's going to have substance. Secretary of State. Correct, correct, uh, for Georgia. So correct, that's, that's absolutely correct. So the issue is going to be, as I've noted many times before, not whether or not these folks, meaning Meadows, for example, and Clark and Trump, were actually serving as officers, although whether Trump is an officer is a separate question, um, it's more of whether or not their actions while they were serving were furthering their roles uh, as whatever role they had, not doing something beyond the scope of their duties in that position. So I think it's going to be difficult for the defense to articulate that. And it doesn't have to be, we'll use the term proven beyond a reasonable doubt, that's not their role anyway, but it just has to be colorable enough to get them past that threshold. But even that low threshold is not going to be so easy because what, what are they doing in the state of Georgia? Why are they mingling in the state of Georgia and the rights of those residents to vote and have their vote counted? That's a difficult hurdle. When is there going to be an answer? Not that day. Okay. Not that day. How much do you think we'll, we'll learn uh, that we don't know already from the indictment on Monday? Um, you know, you're going to hear from potential witnesses that you would not have heard of in the grand jury that are not necessarily set forth in the four corners of an indictment. So you will likely learn more because you're going to have an opportunity to hear directly from them. I mean, two of the attorneys um, that were representing Trump world, right, um, and that were on that call with Raffensperger and Meadows um, have been subpoenaed as well, um, as was the investigator. I think her name's Frances Watson. And so the whole point is to show exactly what did Meadows do, um, who did he talk to, what was he asking? Because just because he was the chief of staff for the president just doesn't mean, well, then he gets this special treatment, right? Um, and really what Fonnie Willis's office, what their argument is, is what he was doing was really in violation of the law, not in terms of the indictment, but the Hatch Act, right? When you are you can't use your public office, right? You cannot even be personal gain you, or any kind of electioneering or kind yeah. of political activity. So you can't then say, well, I was doing this political activity and electioneering, but I was the chief of staff. Ergo, I get this protection. Um, it falls outside of that. Clint, given your extensive experience in Fulton County as a former prosecutor there, October 23rd, 59 right. days from now as a trial start if they get it right. because one of the lawyers, Kenneth Shusborough, wants a, a speedy trial, which defendants have a right to. Um, right. Fonnie Willis's team all ready for that? No problem? Uh, listen, uh, after 25 years in, of experience in that office and having worked personally with Fonnie Willis, I can tell you that uh, her team is uh, ready and prepared to go. Uh, they were ready uh, for trial uh, when the indictment was handed down. Uh, those folks have got their witnesses lined up and they've got their trial notebooks all set. And uh, when October uh, comes, uh, they'll be prepared. And a bit of quick insight. Um, the fact that uh, there are 19 people on this indictment under RICO, this is not unprecedented for this office. Uh, D.A. Willis and myself a few years ago had a RICO case in which 35 individuals were indicted under RICO. Uh, 21 of those individuals entered into negotiated guilty pleas and accepted responsibility and testified during the trial with 12 that actually were tried together. It's the longest criminal jury trial in Georgia history, a little more than eight months. But the complex was able to accommodate all those defendants, all those lawyers, uh, all the evidence. 
and uh, we were able to present a comprehensive case to the jury, uh, and 11 of the 12 uh, received um, guilty convictions. And so uh, the prospect of uh, this case is not overwhelming or unprecedented for this defense team in this office. They certainly have a lot of experience in RICO, including an ongoing one um, right now. Appreciate it. Very good right. to have all your perspective. Our next, hear from Vladimir Putin as he makes his first remarks since the man who led an armed rebellion against him reportedly died in a plane crash. We will take you live to Russia. Also this morning, CNN Greece on the ground there reporting that four arrests have been made as police investigate what started those massive wildfires in the western part of the country. They're looking into whether arsonists are to blame. Right now, across Greece, firefighters still battling dozens of flames. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot. That wasn't, didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. And uh, I have to go through a process. It's uh, election interference. That was former President Trump on Newsmax last night, calling in after he surrendered at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta. The former president is now selling T-shirts, mugs, merch with his mugshot. It has never surrender, big and bold, on the front of the T-shirts that are for sale, even though he did surrender four times this year. By the way, back with us, Mario Parker, Patricia Murphy, Jeremy Salon, and Jen Jordan, the former Georgia state senator who also testified in this investigation and criminal defense attorney and former Fulton County prosecutor, Clint Rucker. Um, Clint, let me just start with you and, and how this is viewed. I don't know, are you, t- you worked so long in that office and you worked with Fonnie Willis too. Have you had conversations right. with them just about how they right. think this whole process is going, their reaction to the former president capitalizing, fundraising off of their efforts? Well, uh, certainly I've got a great relationship with uh, the current district attorney after knowing her, knowing her for so many years. And we do speak uh, on occasion personally, not lately, however, because she's been quite busy, as you might understand. And uh, certainly her ethical oath would uh, prevent her from really divulging much mm-hmm. about what is going on during the course of their investigation and the preparation uh, of this case. And so I certainly understand it. I respect it. And so there have been no uh, details released to me personally with regards to the case. Uh, I can tell you that it is uh, a little unusual to see the former president uh, trying to capitalize financially uh, on uh, his current position. You know, uh, it's a little um, ironic, I guess, for me personally, because uh, I've heard so many public comments by him that uh, he is actually quite wealthy um, to think that he would actually have to fundraise in order to mount a legal defense is um, just a little um, odd to me. Well, he's been passing off those legal costs for years now uh, and to his supporters. And for a period, um, the Republican uh, National Committee was supporting him uh, in those costs. Let's talk about what's coming very soon. This first trial of Kenneth Cheeseborough, who initially the request from the D.A. was for March of 2024. Kenneth Cheeseborough's attorney said, I want a speedy trial, which forced the hand of the D.A. to schedule what, by the end of November? 
Well, by the beginning of November, beginning of November. The term, right, that, that second term. But, you know, what we were discussing before, the expectation likely was that there was no way D.A. Willis and her team was going to be ready to proceed. It was expected to be a bluff. A bluff. And when that bluff is called, that's problematic. As I, I, you know, I was a prosecutor as well, and I'm a criminal defense attorney now. Very often with these felony indictments, uh, the time is your friend. What can happen? There's many intervening factors. Maybe a witness doesn't become available anymore, or there's a change in that testimony, or some intervening factor that we don't even can't even contemplate. So time is often your friend. There's no advantage, especially with this magnitude of evidence that likely in testimony and what you're going to be presented from discovery, that push that forward so aggressively. But what's the strategy behind a bluff, even? Well, you hope that they're not ready and prepared, and if they're not ready and prepared and there's so many moving pieces, yeah. that can favor you as a defendant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, but part of the issue is that this is this is a particular thing under Georgia law. Um, if Fonnie Willis's office wasn't ready and could not go to trial, um, Mr. Chewsbury would be acquitted right. as a matter of law. Wait, explain that more. So if she can't get this if she can't by get the 23rd done, of October. Right. By the 23rd of October or by the, the 1st of November, if she can't start trial by then, he automatically gets a pass. That is so interesting. It's statutory. Yeah. It's statutory. So, And it's meant to, to mirror kind of the protections under the Constitution. So whether she For was defendants. ready. Right. right. Whether she was ready or not, they're going to have to go. Um, and so that's why it's kind of an interesting move by her attorneys, um, specifically her attorney, um, Scott Grubman. Um, is this the is this the preview then, Mario, to what the bigger trial will look like? I know Cheeseboro is a different defendant, but he's part of the alleged fraud, part of the alleged conspiracy. Yeah, and for at least for Trump, at least Trump would love to. His legal uh, strategy has always been to delay, delay, delay. Right? That gives yeah. him time. The closer we get to the presidential election. That kind of gives him even more juice, if you will, to to say that this is election interference, to put prosecutors in a in a in a tough position. But as his well. lawyers can watch what those prosecutors do in this case against Chesbro, and they're going to see a lot more that may be very useful for their case when their client is tried. Yeah, that's that that would. They, I mean, essentially giving him more ammo that would help, right? But again, I think from at least talking to sources within the Trump camp, yep. they would like to see this go as far back as to the, uh, the, the 2024 election, at least closer to it, just to help their political arguments as yep. well. Um, Patricia, out to you, uh, the Mark Meadows of it all, um, former chief of staff here. He's trying to have his case first step uh, removed to uh, the federal uh, court and then... Um, he lost his uh, appeal to or his attempt to try to stop from getting that mugshot and being booked. The larger picture and the influence on this story, this is a, a member of Congress who could have kept that that seat for as long as potentially he wanted, went to the White House, was on this call. The line is, were you just connecting the president to the secretary of state or were you advocating and were you part then of, uh, of this uh, conspiracy? Yeah, uh, that also was not the only time that Mark Meadows was involved in this entire process. He actually showed up in Cobb County unexpectedly when they were doing a signature audit, uh, showed up outside the doors to the point that election workers had to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Meadows, we can't let you in 
to see this process because you're a part of one of the campaigns. He also was a part of connecting people behind the scenes. We feel like uh, he's played a very large role behind the scenes, um, connecting Trump campaign people with state senators, state representatives, all trying to move their case forward to overturn the election here in Georgia. So he certainly was acting at the behest of the president, whether or not that was in a federal capacity or a campaign capacity. Um, Funny Willis has already said that he was violating portions of the Hatch Act which would have kept him out of a role of the campaign, even while he was doing that. So all of this needs to be sorted out, but it, it was not at all just limited to that phone call with Raffensperger. Thank you all for your expertise, your perspective. I certainly learned a lot. Thank you. In Louisiana, wildfires are forcing people to evacuate their homes. From this fire, they've already found embers that are still lit 20 miles away. A look at the efforts to contain those flames ahead. And next, what U.S. intel is now saying about the Russian mercenary leader Prigozhin and the plane that crashed near Moscow. Russian President Vladimir Putin is memorializing Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin as a talented man who made serious mistakes. His first public comments come just one day after the mercenary chief's presumed death in a fiery plane crash near Moscow. I knew Prigozhin for a very long time, since the early 90s. He was a man of difficult fate. Russian officials say flight data shows the plane reached 28,000 feet before it stopped transmitting. Prigozhin's apparent death comes exactly two months after he led a brief armed uprising against Russia's military leaders. CNN's Matthew Chance is live in St. Petersburg. Uh, uh, there in Russia at a memorial for Prigozhin. So beyond talented man who made serious mistakes, what else did he say? Well, I mean, he said that there was going to be an investigation underway and that that investigation was underway and it would be a full one to try and get to the bottom of what actually happened. Uh, the, you know, the incident that brought that plane down where Evgeny Prigozhin, the uh, leader uh, of Wagner was apparently on board according to the passenger manifest. Um, and so there's not absolute confirmation yet, you know, officially that he's dead, but clearly his name is on the list. Everybody on board was killed. But I mean, look at this makeshift memorial that's, uh, that's, that's sprung up here in St. Petersburg, which is of course where Prigozhin was from. It's actually outside the building, which is the headquarters of the Wagner organization. And people are, are streaming through, uh, laying sort of flowers like this. Um, putting photographs of Prigozhin, there's one there, it says, in Russian, it says, in this hell, he was the best. Um, and so people talking about him, of course, very much in the past tense. Uh, over here, if we look, Wagner um, arm patches, Wagner chevrons here that, are, that have been put all over the place. You're seeing a lot of people, family members uh, of people who are in Wagner, Wagner soldiers themselves coming here to, to pay their respects, this this woman here, I don't know whether she speaks English. She's not. She, a lot of people don't want to speak to us. It's not a very, obviously, it's quite a solemn um, um, uh, situation. There's another photograph of uh, Prigozhin over there. This is very interesting because somebody here, look, has put this really heavy, really heavy sledgehammer um, here with uh, with Wagner written on it. The sledgehammer, of course, a potent symbol of the extreme violence that, that Wagner represented 
and its discipline, because it was with a sledgehammer like that that someone they regarded as a traitor was brutally executed with um, on camera. And it really kind of like bolstered this reputation that Wagner had as being this you know, completely ruthless uh, organization that did whatever it felt it, it had to, um, to, to fight for Russia. And so you're seeing a whole stream of people, and there's someone doing it right here, look, a whole stream of people uh, that are coming out now, paying their respects to uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a man who was, you know, I think it, for lots of Russians, he said a lot of things about the incompetence of the Russian military that many people in Russia agreed with. And so I think one of the big questions right now is, come, come a bit closer. One of the big questions right now is, you know, to what extent his death, when he's confirmed to be dead, uh, will actually bolster his reputation? Um, or whether, you know, this will end up to be a, a forgotten chapter in Russia's recent turbulent um, history. And so that's, that's a question we don't know the answer to yet, Victor. So some important context and really interesting to show us around what people have brought there to uh, this uh, memorial. Let's talk about the investigation. It's early on in the investigation to the crash, but what do we know right now? Um, well, we don't know a lot. We know that this, this Embraer Legacy 600 private jet um, climbed to an altitude of 28,000 feet uh, on its regular flight path uh, from Moscow to St. Petersburg here, this city here. Um, and it, it disappeared from radar um, at, you know, I, I, I think it was 13 minutes past 11 local time, six local time, 30 minutes past six local time. Um, and, you know, we don't know much else apart from that. There's been a, an official passenger list that's been put out. There were three crew on board and seven members of Wagner, not just the name of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but also someone called Dmitry Utkin, who you may not have heard of, but he was the founder of the Wagner group. Um, and a few other people as well, the, the, the head of security for the organization, um, senior ranking commanders of Wagner as well. Um, it's not known yet what caused the crash. Uh, there's been lots of speculation about whether it was a bomb, whether it was anti-aircraft fire, whether it was something else. The Russian authorities say that's the purpose of the investigation, to get to the bottom of that. But, I, I, you know, I, I think the, the suspicions are very clear. I mean, it was just two months, well, it was two months to the day after Prigozhin launched the biggest challenge to Vladimir Putin's authority in 23 years. Putin himself called it treachery. He called it a stab in the back for Russia and said it wouldn't go unpunished. And so I think many people believe it's a direct consequence of that, that, that this crash occurred. Matthew Chance with some uh, excellent reporting there for us from St. Petersburg. Thank you. Bobby. That really is really is remarkable to see. All right, now to this next. What the governor of New York is demanding President Biden do about the influx of migrants to her state. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I issued a letter to the Biden administration formally requesting that it take executive action to address New York's migrant crisis. This crisis originated with the federal government and it must be resolved through the federal government. That's New York Governor Kathy Hochul. She's ramping up pressure on the Biden administration for an executive order to help with the wave of more than 100,000 asylum seekers who have arrived in New York City. Hochul says that she's requesting federal funding and space to shelter newcomers and a federal order to speed up legal work for permits for asylum seekers and more. 
CNN's Polo Sandoval joins us now. So why this request now? Yeah, what we've reached now is a very uncomfortable point for Democrats now, where you have New York Governor Kathy Hochul really increasing the pressure and the heat on her fellow Democrat in the White House with her letter specifically addressed to President Joe Biden. She says in that letter that the government's response has been falling short and calling on executive action from the commander in chief on at least four fronts. I'll break them down for you. At the very top of the list is, of course, this issue of work authorizations that we've been talking about since the beginning of this migrant crisis, but also to help fund not only uh, housing, but also the National Guard response that we've seen over the last year and a half. And then uh, you also see on the list there more access to more federal facilities to set up as temporary shelter to some of these asylum seekers. But that number one item is on top of the list for a reason. I have heard time and time again from sources here in New York City that the work authorization issue, that remains the primary exit strategy to try to get the roughly 59,000 individuals that are still in the city's care out of shelters. And it's something that, as you're about to hear from Governor Hochul, um, she also echoed that point as she punted to Biden. The mayor and I said then, and in countless meetings with Congress, the White House, cabinet members, at rallies with labor, press conferences, and working with business, what we've said all along is just let them work and help us out financially. You know, obviously, New York gets a bulk of the attention here because of the overwhelming numbers. But we have heard from Democratic leaders in Colorado. We have heard from Democratic leaders in Massachusetts as well, echoing the same call that you just played for our viewers coming from Governor Hochul, that this is a federal issue that requires a federal solution. The White House, for its part, maintains that it stays in constant communication with these cities to get resources, but punts the ball to Congress. And we know how that may or may not actually work. So, so this is an Biden issue. Biden couldn't just do this it's and then there would away. be the work authorizations. At this point, we haven't heard that from the White House. And it's an issue that's not going away. It's only going to make it more uncomfortable for Democrats at the state, local, and as we just saw, federal Sometimes level. It takes being uncomfortable with those in your yeah. own party to get something done. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Polo. Thanks, guys. Millions of Americans facing not just very high temperatures, but dangerously oppressive heat today. You've got triple-digit temps across the South when relief is coming. That's ahead. And our coverage of this historic moment continues. Donald Trump becomes the first president with a mugshot. We're live outside his Bedminster golf course with what he's planning to do next. The best of the best competing in pro golf in the 2023 PGA Tour Championship in Atlanta. The final 30 players battling for the top prize, staggering $18 million, by the way. But the heat will not help them out on the golf course today. Atlanta heat indices uh, topping 100 degrees almost every day of this tournament. Our meteorologist, Eric Van Dam, live on the East Lake Golf Course in Atlanta with more. Not getting any better, right? Yeah, don't let this uh, picturesque scene on the 10th hole deceive you or our viewers at home. The air here is thick. You can almost cut it with a knife. And temperatures here at Eastlake in Atlanta could challenge records in this particular location. This is the same heat wave that's literally broken hundreds of records this week, impacting over 100 million Americans. Chicago yesterday, your mercury in the thermometer climbed to 100 degrees for the first time in a decade, even set an all-time record for heat index values just impossible to escape this heat. This tournament 
used to be held in November. Better believe me, the players are wishing that that was the case, but it hasn't been since the early 2000s. I talked to the executive director of the PGA Tour Championship. He said he wants the athletes to focus on the prize money, $18 million, not being dehydrated or overheated. They've done all kinds of heat mitigation efforts from cooling stations to uh, sunscreen stations to even ice boxes and cool towels at all the tee locations, tee off locations for the players. Now, we spoke to a Georgia native, Brian Harmon. He is the 2023 British Open champion, and you think that he's used to the heat here. Find out what he had to say to the press yesterday about playing in this type of weather. You would think it would be a little bit of an advantage, but maybe the heat, uh, being in it for so long, has worn you down. I, I'm not sure yet. It never seems to get easy to play in heat like this. The tour's done a really nice job with some amendments to the tee boxes with uh, some cold towels and stuff and some, some more hydration stuff. Uh, we watch a lot more fans go down than players and caddies, so the fans that are coming out, they need to be really careful because you can get in a lot of trouble out there. Poppy, you've got to see this. This is called the Cool Mitt device, new technology that cools the internal core body temperature of the athletes. It's set up at every three holes on this Tour Championship course. Incredible. I've got my hand in it, and it's cool to the touch. It literally can drop your internal body temperature in a matter of seconds. Wow. So helping regulate the players here on the field as kinda, well as the spectators. Yeah, I've never seen something like that. Well, it's kind of like those heating things you use in your glass. You're from Atlanta. You don't know. But Do I have to be a member of the PGA Tour to get <laughs> yeah, one of those? Yes. Victor wants one. I'll, I'll, I'll one. bring it home. They're only a cool $1,000. So, okay, yeah, no big never deal. Mind. <laughs> it's all right. Just at home. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. The 45th president of the United States has now been arrested for the fourth time this year on criminal charges. This is the picture that will probably stand the test of time for Donald Trump. Since this has gone out, he's fundraised off of it. Terrible experience. I came in, I was treated very nicely, but it is what it is. I will not support a convicted felon for the position of president of the United States, regardless of who that person is. When all this is over, I think Donald Trump's going to go down as one of the biggest mistakes this country you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. My question to the Republicans who say you're willing to vote for this guy, would you hire somebody with a mugshot? Would you hire somebody with 91 charges against him? I'm not angry at the prosecutor. I'm angry at Donald Trump for putting us in this position. This is ridiculous. We are going to do our duty to get the answers the American people deserve for this ridiculous indictment that's taken place in Georgia. Well, there you have it, really on every newspaper this morning. It is a mugshot scene around the world. The former President Trump arrested, booked, and photographed at the Fulton County Jail as inmate P01135809. Trump was only at the jail for about 20 minutes. He did turn himself in on those 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his election loss in Georgia. This is Trump's fourth arrest in just five months, but it is the first time He's had a mugshot taken, and this morning the photo is, as we said, on the front page of pretty much every newspaper and tabloid across the nation and around the world. Sources tell CNN Trump made the decision to look defiant in this mugshot. Here's how he described his experience shortly after his release. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words... Mugshot that wasn't didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. 
The former president flaunted that photo, his mugshot on Twitter, now known as X, just two hours after he surrendered. Uh, Trump posted it with the caption, never surrender. It's the first time he's posted on Twitter since he was banned after the January 6th insurrection and then later reinstated. And new overnight, three more of Trump's co-defendants have turned themselves in, including former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. That means that all but two of Trump's 18 co-defendants have now surrendered before the deadline. We're just five hours away from that. It's noon today. And we have team coverage this morning. A lot to get to. Zachary Cohen for us live at the Fulton County Courthouse. Let's begin with Kristen Holmes near uh, Trump's golf course in New Jersey, where he returned very quickly, Kristen, last night, right after very quickly getting out of jail after being booked. What can you tell us about his mood? Because the reporting that he intentionally looked defiant in that mugshot is really interesting. Good morning, Poppy and Victor. Well, yeah, and we know that he and his team had discussed at length what exactly that mugshot would look like. Should he smile? Should he look serious? And that's where they landed. And remember, we talk about the word, quote, defiant. That came directly from a campaign advisor. And that's something that they like to say time and time again after each of these indictments and arraignments, that Trump is defiant. But as we know, two things can be true at once. When it comes to that mugshot, you know, it comes to leaving the jail they were very happy with how that turned out. As you said, they've already started fundraising off of it. They've already started making T-shirts. He posted for the first time on X, formerly known as Twitter, as a way to take control of the media narrative. He knows that people have been waiting for him to get back on Twitter or X for literal years. And so taking control of the narrative is what former President Trump is very good at. But we also know that he is increasingly agitated by all of these charges, by these continuing arrests, and particularly by this this case in Georgia. I have spoken to him at various times about this case and other cases, but he, you can see the real anger when it comes to this specific case in Georgia. He believes, or he says he believes, that he did nothing wrong. And we heard some of that yesterday after he was processed. Take a listen. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. It's what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. It And obviously there, he's talking about District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and they believe that she's out to get him. At least that's what they say, that this is election interference. But I do want to point to one thing that you guys played in the intro there, and that was him talking about his experience at the county jail and him saying it was a terrible experience. These are rare moments where you see Donald Trump actually admitting what this process is like. So much of the time we hear him saying, oh, it's horrible. They're treating me badly. But it's really specifically saying that going into this jail, being processed was a horrible experience. It gives you a glimpse into what actually is going on, how he actually feels about this. Yeah. And as Victor pointed out, he didn't do a big press conference or anything after. Few words on the tarmac. No speech. After the first two, there was this big event in Mar-a-Lago. No questions. Yeah. Yeah. No questions either. Not yeah. this time. We know you would have asked good ones. Kristen Holmes, thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right, so let's look ahead. Uh, and listen, we've got on the screen here uh, now a mix of, of mug shots and some head shots as we're waiting for those last few to come in. Uh, Zachary Cohen is there uh, outside of the Fulton County uh, Jail. Um, or are you at the courthouse? He's outside the courthouse. 
Um, so the deadline is a few hours away. We're expecting that everyone will turn themselves in by that deadline, right? Yeah, Victor and Bobby, it's been a busy 24 hours here at the courthouse and also over at the Fulton County Jail. As um, you know, as you said, uh, 17 of the 19 defendants have already turned themselves in. There's two more that we do expect to turn themselves in at some point today before the new the noon deadline. Um, but look, you know, yesterday when Donald Trump came to the jail, that was probably the busiest moment. The scene outside was, um, you know, his supporters were there cheering him on. Some were dressed in, you know, jail outfits, was holding signs. But there were also some anti-Trump protesters there as well. A good mix. But overnight, even, we've seen some of these defendants come um, turn themselves in even after Trump left the Fulton County Jail. And one of them was former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who you'll remember is an environmental lawyer that Trump almost installed as acting um, acting attorney general at the end of his term because he was the only one at the Department of Justice who would go with his plans to overturn the 2020 election. So, you know, we are nearing the end here. We are. We have seen the vast majority of these defendants turn themselves in. We can kind of look ahead now to what the potential trial will look like. Um, the Fulton County D.A., Fawny Willis, you know, made clear that she is ready to go to trial now. She asked for an October 23rd, 2023 trial date yesterday. Um, that's in, you know, two months from now, and it's an incredibly aggressive timeline for her. You know, Trump made clear yesterday through his lawyers that he really does not have any intention of, um, you know, having a speedy trial. He wants to play this out, delay as long as he possibly can. So, you know, we're going to have to litigate those, um, you know, those elements of the case going forward. But as of now, the, the first step is almost there. We have 17 of 19 defendants who have surrendered and we can look ahead to how a potential trial might play out. Zachary Cohen for us outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Thank you. All right. With us, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. What a week it has been. And there is so much ahead. Let's begin with these efforts to <laughs> look so many. <laughs> Let's begin with these efforts to some of them move their case to federal court, because that's the hearing on Monday. That's what that's about. Right, Poppy. So we have 19 defendants and we can see them now all starting to pull in sort of different directions. Let's start with what we call removal. There's a law that says if you're a federal official or a former federal official and you get charged with state crimes, you can get your case moved to federal court if... This is the big if you can show that you were acting under color of such federal office, meaning you were acting within the scope of your job. Now, we've seen these two defendants so far. Mark Meadows, of course, was the White House chief of staff and Jeffrey Clark was a DOJ official asked to remove their case to federal court. Trump, who, of course, was president, has not yet made that motion, could be coming very soon. The DA has responded. You were not within the scope of your federal office. You were committing crimes. That's the opposite of what you were supposed to be doing under your federal office. Now, Mark Meadows is going to have his hearing on this issue on Monday, and Jeffrey Clarks is going to be in a few weeks on September 18th. Now, one of the big questions is what happens if one of these guys, Clark or Meadows or maybe Trump, succeeds in getting their case moved over to federal court? Does everyone go with them? The only honest answer is we don't know. There's no specific procedure on this. I think the better argument is everyone's on their own because the law is designed to protect federal officials, not... Yeah random co-defendants who happen to be charged along with them. Well, let's talk about one of the defendants who wants a very speedy trial. Yes. Two months. This is, this is by the way, not a typo. This is October was, of 2023, less than two months from Jeff, now. This Kenneth is a, Chesper, one Kenneth of the Chesper, lawyers. a really important development. Under Georgia law, if you are a defendant and you insist on a speedy trial, speedy trial right, by the way, belongs to the defendant, right. you must be tried by the end of the next court term, which here means before November. Kenneth Cheesebro has said, I want my speedy trial. Fonnie Willis said, fine, we'll see your speedy trial. We'll see you October 23rd. Yeah. And the judge said, okay, that's when we'll do your trial. Now, Fonnie Willis said, in fact, I'm going to try all 19 of you. 
on October 23rd. But let me just say, that's not happening. They have a right to contest that. Exactly. You have a right to say, I want my speedy trial. But if you need a little more time than two months to prepare for a massive case like this, you're going to get it. Now, if he goes first, Uh we're going to have separate sequential trials. Big advantage for everyone else. They'll sit back and watch the prosecution put on its whole case against Kenneth Cheesebro, see all the witnesses, cross-exam, take notes. Big tactical advantage. And also, if she doesn't meet that date for trial, he's acquitted. Yes, the case gets thrown out if they don't try him in time. Calendar. Okay, here's 2024. Nice and free, right? Looks good. Hardly. Uh, Yeah. November, of course, is the election. We're all watching that. Let's look at what we have on the schedule. The New York hush money case. Remember that one? That has been scheduled for trial starting in late March. That's certainly going to go through to April. Jack Smith's case, the federal case for Mar-a-Lago down in Florida. That one has been scheduled for late May. That is certainly going to carry through June and July. Now, Jack Smith's other case, his January 6th case, he has asked to start in early January. If he gets that, it's going to carry at least through April, probably beyond that. Now, Trump's team has said, we want a trial in 2026. That's on the other side of the studio. You, mean you don't have a 2026 calendar. No, no, we don't have a 2026 <laughs> page just yet. But the judge is going to hear that on Monday. There's okay. going to be a hearing where she's going to consider that. And finally, just to make it extra complicated, Fonnie Willis, if she doesn't manage to move everyone up to that speedy to trial date, she wants to start in early March, which is going to take, given how slowly things move in Georgia, all the way through here. You can't have the same person on trial three times, two times at once. Because a criminal defendant has to be in the courtroom. Yes, you physically have to be there if you're the criminal defendant. Remember, Donald Trump had the E. Jean Carroll trial, civil case. He didn't have to be there. He He opted out of that. But you have to be there. And important to note, all of these are fluid. Trial dates can and do move. The New York case, for example, the DA has said publicly he'd be willing to consider moving. So Something's got to give here. This traffic jam just became gridlock. Yes, it did. Ellie, thank you very much. Victor. You're within five hours now for the rest of Donald Trump's co-defendants to turn themselves in there at the Fulton County Jail. So what is next as the district attorney eyes, as Poppy and Ellie just discussed, that October trial date? The former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, joins us next. She was outside the jail last night. And Vivek Ramaswamy, apparently, he feels confident after the Republican debate why he says he thinks he'll win the 2024 election in a landslide. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. Well, now that a former president has been arrested and booked for the first time, uh, what happens next? We've been reporting that Donald Trump is expected to try to move this case to federal court. If that were to happen, Trump and his co-defendants would end up with a jury pool uh, more sympathetic than the one that they might get from the Atlanta area. Uh, the state house uh, courthouse there is based in uh, Fulton County in Atlanta. Joining us now is former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, Madam Mayor, good to have you. You were there last night. Um, this is your city. Uh, for it to happen there, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What did you see? 
was a very sad evening for me. I used to work inside of the Fulton County Jail as a magistrate judge, so I've been inside that building. I've represented clients who have been inside that building. It's not a pleasant place. Uh, and to see the former president of the United States booked into that jail, I think really is a sad day for all of us across America because it really is a disgrace that a former president has done things and encouraged others to do things that would lead him uh, to a booking inside the Fulton County Jail. So I, I didn't take any joy in seeing that happen on yesterday. It was a circus atmosphere out there yesterday evening, uh, a lot of anger. Uh, I When I pulled up, they thought that I was Fonnie Willis and began to chant, uh, lock her up. Really? Uh, so it was, uh, it was a, a very, very strange evening, to say the least. We're going to um, have this motion in court on Monday to, to try to get Mark Meadows' case. He wants to move to federal court, and it's the expectation that Trump is going to follow in, in step because the thinking is you get a more favorable jury pool, and if Trump wins again, he could get, get rid of it on the federal level, not the state level. How do you see this playing out, given that it was in your state? Are you expecting this to be tried in Georgia state court? I do expect it to be tried in state court. And you have to remember, Fonnie Willis is a very seasoned prosecutor. So she knew what she was taking before the grand jury and what she had an opportunity to get indictments on. Um, so I do believe that this will play out in state court. You're absolutely right. If it goes into the Northern District of Georgia, much more diverse jury pool. Fulton County is split about 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. I think Democrats may have the upper hand slightly, uh, just um, as diverse, racially diverse. Um, and if you think about the YSL gang trial that's going on mm -hmm. with Young Thug and some other rappers right now, it's been very difficult to see the jury inside Fulton County. So even if it does stay in Fulton County, expect that the jury selection process will take a very long time. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the elements that I guess is kind of a tertiary detail in this saga uh, of this indictment is that we're learning about the Rice Street Jail. Yeah. Um, and people are learning about the conditions of that jail. The sheriff now asking for $2 billion to build another facility. But um, I wonder what you think the impact is of America seeing inside that jail, uh, even after people have lost their lives, uh, related in some ways to the conditions and the lack of care inside of it. Well, I do want to give kudos to Sheriff Labada and his team in the way that they managed yesterday. Uh, the challenges at the Fulton County Jail are very longstanding. It used to be under a federal court consent decree because of the issues at the jail. Uh, it came off of that consent decree a few years ago. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone if it doesn't happen again, given that the DOJ is investigating the conditions at the jail. Uh, this jail was built around 1989. It was overcrowded from the day that it was built. Uh, there uh, has been an effort to uh, get the county to support, and the county recently has approved the support of a new jail. The facility is, is too small. And then you put on top of that COVID, which created an extensive backlog in our court system. So you have a lot of people 
who are in jail waiting on trials in that jail. So I don't think that it's a spotlight uh, that Sheriff Labatt would like to have on the jail, but he's been very vocal about the conditions of the jail and the need for resources. All right, Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you. We want you to, of course, stay with us. Let's bring in CNN political commentator, former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, Ellie Honing also back with us at the table. Uh, Jeff, I just want to start with you as someone who, you know, was by Governor Kemp's side, lieutenant governor during all of what was happening that is now being charged as crimes. You have said there is only one person who's trying to parlay this into running for president. And in your view, 18 other people are going to get train wrecked. That's like that's the big picture here in your view. Yeah, as I was watching the the video play out of him leaving the airport and going to the courthouse and whatnot, I I could only think that almost every American that would be the worst moment in their life, right? Not only because they're walking into a jail and being arraigned or whatever the, the legal procedure is, and then also for the fourth time in four months, but eighteen of your closest friends and advisors are 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 going to be train wrecked, right? They, they could lose everything they have trying to defend what a mirage, a, a fictitious scenario. Uh, a lie. Uh, that, that would be hard to swallow. But for Donald Trump, he's the only one that really sees this as a tailwind mm-hmm. uh, and not a headwind. And so you parlay that, Ellie, into the thinking that maybe this isn't going to be 19 defendants. Maybe some of those 18 co-defendants will see it that way, as what the lieutenant governor just said, and cooperate and flip on Trump. You could see people just taking pleas. You could see people flipping and cooperating. Absolutely. I mean, when push comes to shove, Jeff's right. This is a sobering moment. We've gotten used to it, unfortunately, because we've done so many of these with Donald Trump. But for a normal person, this is terrifying. This can ruin a person financially. Your liberty is at stake. Your family is at stake. I've seen many people in these situations. And ultimately, it's a question of loyalty. I say this to potential cooperators. Do you do you value yourself, your family, your own situation? Or are you going to be loyal to the person who got you in this mess? So I do think people are going to be wrestling with that question as we speak. So the uh, Cheeseboro trial is going to start in about 60 days, right? So we're going to start to see evidence. There will be cameras in the courtroom. Uh, Before the announcement of this trial start date, what was expected maybe were hearings on delays and we need more time. We need documents. Now we'll have evidence. What will be the political Uh, impact of seeing this? I mean, is it as uh, appealing then? Well, I I think the political impact on Trump won't really hit until he goes on trial. And honestly, for most Republicans, they consider all of this to be political until a jury gets it. And I don't know when that's going to be for him in all of his cases, but I do think that's the line of demarcation here. If he is convicted of a felony in any of these cases, it is going to cause a fairly sizable cohort of Republicans to say, I do not want to associate my franchise with this person any longer. Up Despite what we saw at the debate, it was six of the candidates holding up their hands saying they would support him even if he's convicted. I mean, I'm, I'm just reading the polling. I'm just a simple political consultant. Quinnipiac last week. You are not 70, simple. 70%. <laughs> I'm just a caveman. 70% <laughs> of the American people say a felon should not be president, included 58% of Republicans. There so is- when, the, when the jury, by the way, Juries are not political actors. A prosecutor can be vilified as a political actor, and they have been, but a jury is ordinary Americans, your peers. Okay, um, so we were talking earlier about um, Ken Buck, who's a Republican lawmaker, who said this yesterday on that front. Oh, we don't have it. Well, mm. he basically said, I will not vote for a convicted yeah. felon, whoever it is. And he, the question was about Trump. You're very close to Mitch McConnell, for example, former advisor. Can you see words like that coming out of his mouth and Republican leadership's mouths in the House and the Senate? 
I don't think they are going to, for McConnell, he has studiously avoided commenting on Trump since his floor speech in the second impeachment trial. And his last words on this were uh, the criminal justice system and the civil justice system will have something to say about a former president and, and we'll have to let that process play out. What's happening right now? So do I expect them to go out and play pundit on this as these trials unfold? No, but it is obvious to me that Trump is already in a difficult way in terms of a general election voter sample. You throw a felony conviction on top of it, it makes it very difficult to see how, you know, if you, if you, I mean, is there anything about this that would have made someone who leaned against him before lean into him this time? Donald Trump has brought the Republican Party to a slow boil, much like a frog in a pot, right? Like, you don't realize, I don't think, the majority of Republicans how bad this is, right? Even if he was to figure out a way to win the nomination, which the polling shows that that seems likely, Mm -hmm. then to win the actual general election, which I don't think is likely. But then what would he govern like, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're so close to disaster. And we have somehow normalized mugshots. And, and it's, we're going to have to flip the script here. Normally, America leans into leaders to lead us through this. We're going to have to start from reverse leadership. The voters are going to have to. Republicans are going to have to grab a hold of this. Local county commissioners are going to have to grab a hold of this party and to change the direction of it, or else we might lose it forever. But this slow boil is why I don't understand why you believe that voters won't vote for him if he's convicted. Because the temperature is still going up. The frog is still alive in the pot. If you think that these polls show that they're not going to vote for him once he's convicted, you could ask them two years ago. They probably would have said then that they're not going to support him in the position he is in now. I don't know. I, I think more Republicans than you think, including people who have no intention of voting for him right now, believe he's getting a raw deal. I mean, massive numbers of Republicans think he has been pursued, hounded, politically persecuted, whatever you want to call it. They have no intention of supporting him ever again, but they do believe that. So there is an undercurrent of that already. But the people who decide elections are sort of, you know, independent, center-right independents in the suburbs, around Atlanta, around Phoenix, around Raleigh and other places. They do, I'm just, they are not going to vote for a convicted felon. They are not going to do it. I, this, this election cannot be a referendum on whether it's okay to be a convicted felon and the president. If you want to win, it has to be a referendum on Joe Biden. Every Republican I know wants it to be a referendum on Biden. I had the same thought as you, Victor, which is the goalposts keep moving, right? First it was, well, he's been impeached, but not accused of a crime. Now he's accused of a crime. I'll tell you what the, what's going to be said if he gets convicted. Let's say a conviction comes down April. He's accused Who of knows? 91 crimes. Right, but let's say any of them. The response is going to be, well, he still has his appeal rights. And we think that trial wasn't held legitimately or whatever. It's, there's always going to be, well, not always, but certainly before the election, there will always be some other step in the there. The frog is also addicted to a drug called Donald Trump. And we may have to crash and burn as a party. We may have to really see how bad, bad gets before we mean? wake up. What does that look Because Judge Ludig, who's <clears throat> a very conservative legal scholar, right, um, said to us the other week, there is no Republican Party anymore. Mm. What does crash and burn look like? I think, I mean, there is, right? For I mean, if, if you look at the polling, 35% of folks are, are addicted to Donald Trump and they seem to be running the party, but there's still 65%. 50 million Republicans that are wanting to ask tough questions and want genuine leadership. And to your point, they want to go beat Joe Biden, right? who, by the way, is the most easily beatable president maybe in history right now. And we, we just don't seem to want to wake up to the easy and, facts. And he's still 35 points ahead of his closest rival in the primary. Uh, Ellie, Scott and Jeff, thank you so much. Okay. Did President Trump's arrest steal the spotlight from some candidates who were on the rise after Wednesday's GOP debate? We'll discuss the state of the race next. 
I expect to be the next president. I expect to win in a landslide. But I will require respectfully each of those people to play their respective roles in our national revival as well in some way, because this is a team sport. That was Republican presidential hopeful and Mr. Confident Vivek Ramaswamy last night talking about how he will need fellow Republicans from the debate stage when he wins a presidency. He drew criticism from his for his young age and also political inexperience from several candidates during the debate. Now he is trying to seize on the attention he has received. Of course, former President Trump is now back in the spotlight, though, after his arrest yesterday. And all the candidates who were on stage that night are still chasing his double digit lead. Let's talk about all of this. Former Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence, Olivia Troy, joins us. And CNN political commentator Scott Jennings is back at the table. Scott, I want to start with you. You know this party very well. I'm digging through here looking for, okay, here's the Wall Street Journal front page. Political rookie upstages his rivals at the Republican debate. He does not lack confidence. He does lack experience, but he's got a lot of success in business. He's obviously been intriguing to Republicans. What are you hearing? Well, he's, he is channeling, aping Trump. I mean, everything about him is trying to rerun and recreate the Trump playbook. The trouble is Trump is still in the race, and yeah. he's sort of serving as just a surrogate for Trump. And so I don't know how he expects to get the nomination yeah. and be the next president in a landslide. Well, Brett Baer just, and Martha McCallum did an interview after they yeah. moderated the mm-hmm. debate, which I think they did a great job at, by the way. And Brett Baer said he wished he had in that moment asked him, yeah. if you think Trump's the best president of the 21st century, then why are you running? He, he lacks, you have to remember back in 16, Trump had a likability factor and people knew who he was before he came into the race. They kind of liked Trump. He said crazy things, but people just kind of liked him. You know, there's a reason that, like, Scooby-Doo is one of the most beloved characters in animation, and Scrappy-Doo is one of the most despised characters. I love Scrappy-Doo. We got Scooby and Scrappy here, and I just think this act is going to wear thin. People still love Scooby. Well, is, that, is, that, is that a ticket? Scooby, is that a ticket? I like Scrappy-Doo. Olivia, let me come back to you. We're talking about single-digit candidates here. I mean, the person here who has more than half of the support is Donald Trump. Does anything that happened over the last 48 hours or so change uh, that share? That he's far and ahead and maybe uh, Ramaswamy gets into double digits? No, unfortunately, as much as I would like to see this moment in time pass, I think Trump remains the front runner. I think he was on stage that night. He had his proxy up there, like Scott said. Uh, Ramaswamy was pretty much mini-me up there, and he was pretty much parroting everything that Trump has said and positions that Trump has taken in the past. While Trump was omnipresent throughout the debate, he was the elephant in the room, so to speak. I, I, I had hoped that uh, we would see a breakthrough. Um, but look, Trump is out there fundraising based on his, uh, you know, his mugshot yesterday. Um, I would think that we would want to take that moment more seriously for th- this time in our country. But it is what it is. The grift continues. But there's also the portion, uh, there's another portion of this interview with uh, Laura Ingram that I think really sells the point here. Um, there, He's answering some question, kind of giving his pitch, and then this happens. Watch. I do think it's an important point to pause on where the left feeds our vacuum of purpose with race, gender, sexuality, climate. And I do think we as conservatives need to now level up. So we're not just criticizing that agenda, but offer an actual vision of our own individual family, nation, God. 
I'm leading the way on that, but I'm going to need the other people on that stage to play their part right, in our Vivek, revival, too. We, Vivek, we got to get, ba- get back to the Trump chase here, but um, thank you for joining yes. us. That's the race, yeah. Scott. That's the race. He's making a pitch. He's trying to sell on policy. Sorry, we got to go over here and, and follow one of these cases. Yeah, and, and the per- there's no differentiating between him and Trump. He's got no area where he says, this is how I would be different and therefore a better candidate. He said Trump's the best candidate of the 21st century. He has gone to the courthouse in cases where Trump has been uh, indicted and arraigned. It is a pure Trump surrogacy. And after all the debate, who did Trump thank? Ramaswamy, because he's hurting DeSantis. I mean, I mean, he is the guy who's trying to sort of drag DeSantis down. And DeSantis is the only candidate they're worried about the Trump camp, which is why Trump continues to attack him and send their surrogate out to attack him. Olivia, uh, you worked closely with former Vice President Mike Pence. I think we saw the most aggressive, um, combative Mike Pence I've ever seen. I wonder if you've seen that on the debate stage. But guess who he was most of that toward? Vivek Ramaswamy. That was interesting. Yeah, I found that interesting as well. Uh, look, hey, I was uh, I was proud of my former boss. It looks like he finally found his voice. Um, he came out uh, swinging, and I think that's very unlike Mike Pence normally. He's a very non-confrontational individual, but I think he's going to need to maintain that level of sort of presence on stage and continue to push back on people. And I hope that he'll stay the course going forward. But like you said, he was pushing back on who? Ramaswamy, which is interesting, right? Because for a while there, it was always about DeSantis. DeSantis was like the second, you know, in command waiting. And he's been sort of the second person in the polling. But it's interesting that really, the attacks were were directed at Vivek, who I guess was, you know, seen as as Trump. Um, But I would say this. The one thing I would caution about the, the sort of the counters on Vivek is there was there was a lot of talk about his inexperience, which I think it's important, inexperience on foreign policy, which I think Nikki Haley did a great job on. But the age thing, I would kind of I would kind of take a pause on that because I want to remind people that Gen Z is a powerful voting bloc. Mm -hmm. Right. They I do believe that they they will make a difference in the upcoming elections. And so just remember that those young voters are also listening to what you're saying. All right. Olivia Troy, Scott Jennings. Thank you. It's hard to believe it has been 60 years since that historic march on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I have a dream speech. Our Jason Carroll sat down with activists who were there that day. We are still. While in a much better place than we were in 63, not in the place where one would expect 60 years on. Monday will mark the 60th anniversary of the historic civil rights march on Washington. 250,000 people from across the country flooded the streets, flooded the mall there in Washington to fight for jobs and freedom and help lead to new laws, including The Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed overt racial discrimination. Yet, of course, the fight for equality is really never over. CNN's Jason Carroll joins us now. Um, I'm glad we are doing this. I'm glad you have done this. Thank Uh, you. You spoke with some people who were there 60 years ago. Tell Mm -hmm. us about those conversations. Well, first of all, let me just explain. The, The theme this year, and it says so much of the march this year, is a commemoration, not a continuation. So it's a continue to push for civil rights. And as you said, I did speak to two men, if you can believe it, who were there 60 years ago, spoke to them about the march, also spoke to them about where they saw the country then versus where it is now. Freedom! 
was a call for economic and racial equality, a call to action that brought more than 200,000 people to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. on August 28th, 60 years ago, a day best remembered for Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic I Have a Dream speech. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Among the hundreds of thousands, two young activists who were filled with hope. I was all the way in the top. All the way on the top, over yeah. to the left. Yeah, over to the left. Cortland Cox is now 82, but 60 years ago, he was a 22-year-old working for the civil rights organization SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And what I remember is the platform is there in the center. Edward Flanagan was there too. Where were you? Do you remember? I was sitting on the the wall uh, up top there by the uh, entertainers. Flanagan is 80 now, but on the day of the march, he was a 20-year-old who had just finished his shift as a waiter. Like scores of others, he wanted to take a stand for civil rights. I was very close to Joan Baez. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was able to notice she was barefoot, and I had on a new pair of shoes. She, she was barefoot. She was barefoot. A march six decades ago, now seen through the eyes of two different men who shared the same goal many did that day. It was, in fact, a march for jobs and freedom. Our thoughts as a day is that we succeeded in changing this country. As a young organizer, Cox was responsible for arranging safe transportation for people making the trek from the south to Washington, D.C. He says there were challenges from top to bottom. Much had to be done in very little time. The challenge from the bottom was the logistics of getting people here. Over a period, I'm trying to get trailways buses, I'm trying to get Greyhound buses, and the drivers are saying, look, it's dangerous bringing people to the south. The challenge from the top was the Kennedy administration was opposed to John Lewis's speech. Cox worked alongside then 23-year-old civil rights activist John Lewis, who was the chairman of SNCC. This picture shows the two men as they rewrote the speech to tone it down to make it less critical of the Kennedy administration's civil rights bill, which they felt didn't go far enough to protect people from police brutality. John Lewis, Jim Foreman, and myself were in the back of the Lincoln Memorial rechanging John Lewis's speech to make sure that while it was critical, it did, was not negative. That had to have been an incredible moment. Oh, yeah, but what was more incredible to me is that John got up after all of that controversy and delivered a fantastic speech. It is true that we support the administration's civil rights bill. We support it with great reservation, however. I've never been here before. You've I've never, been, I've been, never here. been here before. Well, that's very This sad. week, Flanagan brought his daughters back to the place history was made. He'll be back again Saturday. That's the side where the entertainers were. Cox prefers to stay away this time, saying his marching days are behind him. Both agree while much was accomplished that day, the work is not over. We are still, while in a much better place than we were in 63, not in the place where one would expect 60 years on. We succeeded in doing a number of things by what we did in the past, but we also know that we have to do much more for the future. Of great concern to Mr. Cox and Mr. Flanagan is when they see the push to change how African-American studies are taught in the United States. These are people who live through lynchings. They live through not having access to jobs or education. Again, a reminder that this is a fight for them that is not over.
Yeah, these men are, are national treasures. I mean, I can only imagine the conversations you were afforded uh, with them. And, and when we look, as they said, these school districts now are trying to rob students of learning about not only what these men fought against, mm-hmm. but also in some cases, these actual events. Right. That and, and that's why there is this great concern, not only about concerns about getting jobs in this current day and age, but also that much of what they went through is going to be erased. And they want to make sure that this is something that does not happen. Told in the beautiful way you always do, Jason. Really, truly, thank you you for doing that. We appreciate it. Okay, former President Trump's campaign is already fundraising in unique ways off his booking and his mugshot last night. Where will his new mugshot stack up, though, against some of the most famous in history? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Stunning split screen, Donald Trump's official presidential picture and the mugshot from his arrest yesterday. He is the first former president to have his mugshot taken, begging the question, what will his legacy be and the legacy of this photo, right? He is hardly the first prominent figure in American history to have a mugshot memorialized from civil rights icons, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, John Lewis, criminals and crime bosses like Al Capone, John Gotti, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Jeffrey Epstein, as well as people like O.J. Simpson, Robert Downey Jr., Nick Nolte, and James Brown. Our correspondent Tom Foreman is with us this morning to walk us through the most noteworthy mugshots. This one will certainly be remembered, but it's alongside others, too. Yeah, it really is. And you pointed it out there, Poppy, very well. There really are at least three categories of mugshots. There are the sure enough criminals, the people who we all know are are there because of serious crimes and who eventually get convicted of serious crimes and move on. Then there are the celebrity mugshots that would come up, people who in some way or another have stumbled into a run-in with the law, uh, maybe public drunkenness, maybe something like this. In the case of O.J. Simpson, very serious charges, but other charges out there. In the case of Nick Nolte, it was a drug abuse issue, which he said helped drive him into uh, rehab to make things better for him. Uh, those often uh, become lesser issues in a way. They're big celebrity causes, but they don't necessarily have a, a giant impact on the whole of society. And then there are those who are people who really have stood for some kind of giant moment in the rights of Americans and the fight for rights and the fight for justice in this country. 100%. Donald Trump and his followers want to see him as fitting into that category of standing up for something right. In fact, uh, some of his supporters had said that they are, some in his camp said that when he had the mugshot taken, he wanted to appear defiant. I don't know if you're going to see him as defiant. Many people in this country where he's always been a minority president are going to say he doesn't look defiant to me. But uh, those are really sort of the three categories of, of people out there. And, and with politicians, you know, there have been others who have had their photographs taken like this before. John Edwards, uh, Tom DeLay, Rick Perry. Interestingly, John Edwards for using campaign funds to try to hide an illicit affair out there. That sounds a little bit familiar. So, Poppy, we've seen a lot of these before. They don't all mean the same thing. What's the history of the mugshot, Tom? The history, I think the history of the mugshot is very interesting. It goes back to 1888, French. Uh, um, Alphonse Bertillon, who was a police officer, they had been taking photographs of people who they arrested, 
but they were taken from all different kinds of ways. And he thought we should have a standardized way of doing it. So this is him. The very first mugshot was of him and he was innocent. So we'll see what happens as the Trump mugshot plays out. Um, He would like it to be something uh, triumphant in the end. This is the first time, though, we know that it has been tied to the presidency, and we know millions of times they've been tied to the penitentiary. Mm. Poppy? All right, Tom Foreman, thank you. My pleasure. More Trump's 18 co-defendants turned themselves in overnight. Still two more to turn themselves in by noon Eastern, the deadline a little more than four hours away. We also have this ahead for you. This is the moment that Shamel Capers first saw his daughter after spending eight years in prison. A new unit within the Queens District Attorney's Office fought to get his murder conviction vacated after new evidence came to light. Do you think you'd still be in jail if it were not for the Conviction Integrity Unit? Yes, I would still be fighting. believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. The 45th president of the United States has now been arrested for the fourth time this year on criminal charges. This is the picture that will probably stand the test of time for Donald Trump. Since this has gone out, he's fundraised off of it. Terrible experience. I came in, I was treated very nicely, but it is what it is. I will not support a convicted felon for the position of president of the United States, regardless of who that person is. When all this is over, I think Donald Trump's going to go down as one of the biggest mistakes this country You should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. My question to the Republicans who say you're willing to vote for this guy, would you hire somebody with a mugshot? Would you hire somebody with 91 charges against him? I'm not angry at the prosecutor. I'm angry at Donald Trump for putting us in this position. This is ridiculous. We are going to do our duty to get the answers the American people deserve for this ridiculous indictment that's taken place in Georgia. Well, there you have it, really on every newspaper this morning. It is a mugshot scene around the world. The former President Trump arrested, booked, and photographed at the Fulton County Jail as inmate P0113589. Trump was only at the jail for about 20 minutes. He did turn himself in on those 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his election loss in Georgia. This is Trump's fourth arrest in just five months, but it is the first time He's had a mugshot taken, and this morning the photo is, as we said, on the front page of pretty much every newspaper and tabloid across the nation and around the world. Sources tell CNN Trump made the decision to look defiant in this mugshot. Here's how he described his experience shortly after his release. Terrible experience. Uh, I came in, I was treated very nicely, but uh, it is what it is. I took a mugshot, which I never heard the words mugshot that wasn't didn't teach me that at the Wharton School of Finance. The former president flaunted that photo, his mugshot on Twitter, now known as X, just two hours after he surrendered. Trump posted it with the caption, never surrender. It's the first time he's posted on Twitter since he was banned after the January 6th insurrection and then later reinstated. And new overnight, three more of Trump's co-defendants have turned themselves in, including former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark. That means that all but two of Trump's 18 co-defendants have now surrendered before the deadline, which is five hours away from that. It's noon today. And we have team coverage this morning, a lot to get to. Zachary Cohen for us live at the Fulton County Courthouse. Let's begin with Kristen Holmes near uh, Trump's golf course in New Jersey, where he returned very quickly, Kristen, last night, right after very quickly getting out of jail after being booked. What can you tell us about his mood? Because the reporting that he 
intentionally looked defiant in that mugshot is really interesting. Good morning, Poppy and Victor. Well, yeah, and we know that he and his team had discussed at length what exactly that mugshot would look like. Should he smile? Should he look serious? And that's where they landed. And remember, we talk about the word, quote, defiant. That came directly from a campaign advisor. And that's something that they like to say time and time again after each of these indictments and arraignments, that Trump is defiant. But as we know, two things can be true at once. When it comes to that mugshot, when it comes to leaving the jail, they were very happy with how that turned out. As you said, they've already started fundraising off of it. They've already started making T-shirts. He posted for the first time on X, formerly known as Twitter, as a way to take control of the media narrative. He knows that people have been waiting for him to get back on Twitter or X for literal years. And so taking control of the narrative is what former President Trump is very good at. But we also know that he is increasingly agitated by all of these charges, by these continuing arrests, and particularly by this this case in Georgia. I have spoken to him at various times about this case and other cases, but he can, you can see the real anger when it comes to this specific case in Georgia. He believes, or he says he believes, that he did nothing wrong. And we heard some of that yesterday after he was processed. Take a listen. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. It's what has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. It And obviously there, he's talking about District Attorney Fonnie Willis, and they believe that she's out to get him. At least that's what they say, that this is election interference. But I do want to point to one thing that you guys played in the intro there, and that was him talking about his experience at the county jail and him saying it was a terrible experience. These are rare moments where you see Donald Trump actually admitting what this process is like. So much of the time we hear him saying, oh, it's horrible. They're treating me badly. But it's really specifically saying that going into this jail, being processed was a horrible experience. It gives you a glimpse into what actually is going on, how he actually feels about this. Yeah. And as Victor pointed out, he didn't do a big press conference or anything after. Few words on the tarmac. No speech. After the first two, there was this big event in Mar-a-Lago. No questions. Yeah. Yeah. No questions either. Not yeah. this time. We know you would have asked good ones. Chris Holmes, thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right, so let's look ahead. Uh, and listen, we've got on the screen here uh, now a mix of, of mug shots and some head shots as we're waiting for those last few to come in. Uh, Zachary Cohen is there uh, outside of the Fulton County uh, Jail. Um, are you at the courthouse? He's outside the courthouse. Um, so the deadline is a few hours away. We're expecting that everyone will turn themselves in by that deadline, right? Yeah, Victor and Bobby, it's been a busy 24 hours here at the courthouse and also over at the Fulton County Jail. As um, you know, as you said, uh, 17 of the 19 defendants have already turned themselves in. There's Two more that we do expect to turn themselves in at some point today before the new the noon deadline. Um, but look, you know, yesterday when Donald Trump came to the jail, that was 
probably the busiest moment. The scene outside was, um, you know, his supporters were there cheering him on. Some were dressed in, you know, jail outfits, was holding signs. But there were also some anti-Trump protesters there as well. A good mix. But overnight, even, we've seen some of these defendants come um, turn themselves in even after Trump left the Fulton County Jail. And one of them was former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who you'll remember is an environmental lawyer that Trump almost installed as acting um, acting attorney general at the end of his term because he was the only one at the Department of Justice who would go with his plans to overturn the 2020 election. So, you know, we are nearing the end here. We are we have seen the vast majority of these defendants turn themselves in. We can kind of look ahead now to what the potential trial will look like. Um, the Fulton County D.A., Fonnie Willis, you know, made clear that she is ready to go to trial now. She asked for an October 23rd, 2023 trial date yesterday. Um, that's in, you know, two months from now. And it's an incredibly aggressive timeline for her. You know, Trump made clear yesterday through his lawyers that he really does not have any intention of, um, you know, having a speedy trial. He wants to play this out, delay as long as he possibly can. So, you know, we're going to have to litigate those, um, you know, those elements of the case going forward. But as of now, the, the first step is almost there. We have 17 of 19 defendants who have surrendered and we can look ahead to how a potential trial might play out. Zachary Cohen for us outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Thank you. All right. With us, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. What a week it has been. And there is so much ahead. Let's begin with these efforts to <laughs> look so many. <laughs> Let's begin with these efforts to some of them move their case to federal court, because that's the hearing on Monday. That's what that's about. Right, Poppy. So we have 19 defendants and we can see them now all starting to pull in sort of different directions. Let's start with what we call removal. There's a law that says if you're a federal official or a former federal official and you get charged with state crimes, you can get your case moved to federal court if this is the big if you can show that you were acting under color of such federal office, meaning you were acting within the scope of your job. Now, we've seen these two defendants so far. Mark Meadows, of course, was the White House chief of staff and Jeffrey Clark was a DOJ official asked to remove their case to federal court. Trump, who, of course, was president, has not yet made that motion, could be coming very soon. The DA has responded. You are not within the scope of your federal office. You were committing crimes. That's the opposite of what you were supposed to be doing under your federal office. Now, Mark Meadows is going to have his hearing on this issue on Monday, and Jeffrey Clark's is going to be in a few weeks on September 18th. Now, one of the big questions is what happens if one of these guys, Clark or Meadows or maybe Trump, succeeds in getting their case moved over to federal court? Does everyone go with them? The only honest answer is we don't know. There's no specific procedure on this. I think the better argument is everyone's on their own because the law is designed to protect federal officials, not random co-defendants who happen to be charged along with them. Well, let's talk about one of the defendants who wants a very speedy trial. Yes. Two months. This is, this is by the way, not a typo. This is October was, of 2023, less than two months from yeah, now. This Kenneth is a, Chesper, one of the lawyers. a really important development. Under Georgia law, if you are a defendant and you insist on a speedy trial, speedy trial, right, by the way, belongs to the defendant, right. you must be tried by the end of the next court term, which here means before November. Kenneth Cheesebro has said, I want my speedy trial. Fonnie Willis said, fine, we'll see your speedy trial. We'll see you October 23rd. And the judge said, okay, that's when we'll do your trial. Now, Fonnie Willis said, in fact, I'm going to try all 19 of you on October 23rd. But let me just say, that's not happening. They have a right to contest that. Exactly. You have a right to say, I want my speedy trial. But if you need a little more time than two months to prepare for a massive case like this, you're going to get it. Now, if he goes first, uh-huh. We're going to have separate sequential trials. Big advantage for everyone else. They'll sit back and watch the prosecution put on its whole case against Kenneth Cheesebro, see all the witnesses, cross-exam, take all notes, 
Big That's, tactical advantage. And also, if she doesn't meet that date for trial, he's acquitted on the Georgia Yes, the law. case gets thrown out if they don't try him in time. Calendar. Okay, here's 2024. Nice and free, right? Looks good. Hardly. Uh, yeah. November, of course, is the election. We're all watching that. Let's look at what we have on the schedule. The New York hush money case. Remember that one? That has been scheduled for trial starting in late March. That's certainly going to go through to April. Jack Smith's case, the federal case for Mar-a-Lago down in Florida. That one has been scheduled for late May. That is certainly going to carry through June and July. Now, Jack Smith's other case, his January 6th case, he has asked to start in early January. If he gets that, it's going to carry at least through April, probably beyond that. Now, Trump's team has said, we want a trial in 2026. That's on the other side of the studio. You, mean you don't have a 2026 calendar. No, no, here <laughs> we don't have a 2026 <laughs> page just yet. But the judge is going to hear that on Monday. There's okay. going to be a hearing where she's going to consider that. And finally, just to make it extra complicated, Fonnie Willis, if she doesn't manage to move everyone up to that wants speedy to trial date, she wants to start in early March, which is going to take, given how slowly things move in Georgia, all the way through here. You can't have th- the same person on trial three times, two times at once. Because a criminal defendant has to be in the courtroom. Yes, you physically have to be there if you're the criminal defendant. Remember, Donald Trump had the E. Jean Carroll trial, yeah, civil he, case. He didn't have to be there. He, he opted out there. of that, but you have to be there. And important to note, all of these are fluid. Trial dates can and do move. The New York case, for example, the DA has said publicly he'd be willing to consider moving. So. Something's got to give here. This traffic jam just became gridlock. Yes, it did. Ellie, thank you very much. Victor. Be within five hours now for the rest of Donald Trump's co-defendants to turn themselves in there at the Fulton County Jail. So what is next as the district attorney eyes, as Poppy and Ellie just discussed, that October trial date? The former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, joins us next. She was outside the jail last night. And Vivek Ramaswamy, apparently, he feels confident after the Republican debate why he says he thinks he'll win the 2024 election in a landslide. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. Well, now that a former president has been arrested and booked for the first time, uh, what happens next? We've been reporting that Donald Trump is expected to try to move this case to federal court. If that were to happen, Trump and his co-defendants would end up with a jury pool uh, more sympathetic than the one that they might get from the Atlanta area. Uh, the state house uh, courthouse there is based in uh, Fulton County in Atlanta. Joining us now is former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, Madam Mayor, good to have you. You were there last night. Um, this is your city. Uh, for it to happen there, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What did you see? a very sad evening for me. I used to work inside of the Fulton County Jail as a magistrate judge, so I've been inside that building. I've represented clients who have been inside that building. It's not a pleasant place. Uh, And to see the former president of the United States booked into that jail, I think really is a sad day for all of us across America, because it really is a disgrace that a former president 
has done things and encouraged others to do things that would lead him uh, to a booking inside the Fulton County Jail. So I, I didn't take any joy in seeing that happen on yesterday. It was a circus atmosphere out there yesterday evening, uh, a lot of anger. Uh, I When I pulled up, they thought that I was Fonnie Willis and began to chant, uh, lock her up. Really? Uh, so it was, uh, it was a, a very, very strange evening, to say the least. We're going to um, have this motion in court on Monday to, to try to get Mark Meadows' case. He wants to move to federal court, and it's the expectation that Trump is going to follow in, in step because the thinking is you get a more favorable jury pool, and if Trump wins again, he could get, get rid of it on the federal level, not the state level. How do you see this playing out, given that it was in your state? Are you expecting this to be tried in Georgia state court? I do expect it to be tried in state court. And you have to remember, Fonnie Willis is a very seasoned prosecutor. So she knew what she was taking before the grand jury and what she had an opportunity to get indictments on. Um, so I do believe that this will play out in state court. You're absolutely right. If it goes into the Northern District of Georgia, much more diverse jury pool. Fulton County is split about 50-50 between Democrats and Republicans. I think Democrats may have the upper hand slightly, uh, just um, as diverse, racially diverse. Um, and if you think about the YSL gang trial that's going on mm -hmm. with Young Thug and some other rappers right now, it's been very difficult to see the jury inside Fulton County. So even if it does stay in Fulton County, expect that the jury selection process will take a very long time. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the elements that I guess is kind of a tertiary detail in this saga uh, of this indictment is that we're learning about the Rice Street Jail. Yeah. Um, and people are learning about the conditions of that jail. The sheriff now asking for $2 billion to build another facility. But um, I wonder what you think the impact is of America seeing inside that jail, uh, even after people have lost their lives, uh, related in some ways to the conditions and the lack of care inside of it. Well, I do want to give kudos to Sheriff Labada and his team in the way that they managed yesterday. Uh, the challenges at the Fulton County Jail are very longstanding. It used to be under a federal court consent decree because of the issues at the jail. Uh, it came off of that consent decree a few years ago. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone if it doesn't happen again, given that the DOJ is investigating the conditions at the jail. Uh, this jail was built around 1989. It was overcrowded from the day that it was built. Uh, there uh, has been an effort to uh, get the county to support, and the county recently has approved the support of a new jail. The facility is, is too small. And then you put on top of that COVID, which created an extensive backlog in our court system. So you have a lot of people who are in jail waiting on trials in that jail. So I don't think that it's a spotlight uh, that Sheriff Labatt would like to have on the jail, but he's been very vocal about the conditions of the jail and the need for resources. All right, Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you. We want you to, of course, stay with us. Let's bring in CNN political commentator, former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, CNN political commentator, Scott Jennings, Ellie Honing, also back with us at the table. Uh, Jeff, I just want to start with you as someone who you know, was by Governor Kemp's side, Lieutenant Governor, during all of what was happening that is now being charged as crimes. You have said 
There is only one person who's trying to parlay this into running for president. And in your view, 18 other people are going to get train wrecked. That's like that's the big picture here in your view. Yeah. As I was watching the, the video play out of him leaving the airport and going to the courthouse and whatnot, I, I could only think that almost every American, that would be the worst moment in their life. Right? not only because they're walking into a jail and being arraigned or whatever the, the legal procedure is, and then also for the fourth time in four months, but 18 of your closest friends and advisors are, are, are going to be train wrecked, right? They, they could lose everything they have trying to defend what? A mirage, a, a fictitious scenario, uh, a lie. Uh, that, that would be hard to swallow. But for Donald Trump, he's the only one that really sees this as a tailwind uh, and not a headwind. And so you parlay that, Ellie, into the thinking that maybe this isn't going to be 19 defendants. Maybe some of those 18 co-defendants will see it that way, as what the lieutenant governor just said, and cooperate and flip on Trump. You could see people just taking pleas. You could see people flipping and cooperating. Absolutely. I mean, when push comes to shove, Jeff's right. This is a sobering moment. We've gotten used to it, unfortunately, because we've done so many of these with Donald Trump. But for a normal person, this is terrifying. This can ruin a person financially. Your liberty is at stake. Your family is at stake. I've seen many people in these situations. And ultimately, it's a question of loyalty. I say this to potential cooperators. Do you, do you value yourself, your family, your own situation, or are you going to be loyal to the person who got you in this mess? So I, I do think people are going to be wrestling with that question as we speak. So the uh, Cheeseboro trial is going to start in about 60 days, right? So we're going to start to see evidence. Yeah. There will be cameras in the courtroom. Uh, before the announcement of this trial start date, what was expected maybe were hearings on delays and we need more time. We need documents. Now we'll have evidence. What will be the political uh, impact of seeing this? I mean, is it as uh, appealing then? Well, I, I think the political impact on Trump won't really hit until he goes on trial. And honestly, for most Republicans, they consider all of this to be political until a jury gets it. And I don't know when that's going to be for him in all of his cases, but I do think that's the line of demarcation here. If he is convicted of a felony in any of these cases, it is going to cause a fairly sizable cohort of Republicans to say, I do not want to associate my franchise with this person any longer. Up Despite until, what we saw at the debate, right. it was six of the candidates holding up their hands saying they would support him even if he's convicted. I mean, I'm, I'm just reading the polling. I'm just a simple political consultant. <laughs> Quinnipiac last week. You are not 70, simple. 70 percent. <laughs> I'm just a caveman. 70 percent <laughs> of the American people say a felon should not be president, included 58 percent of Republicans. There so is. When, the, when the jury, by the way. Juries are not political actors. A prosecutor can be vilified as a political actor, and they have been, but a jury is ordinary Americans, your peers. Okay, um, so we were talking earlier about um, Ken Buck, who's a Republican lawmaker, who said this yesterday on that front. Oh, we don't have it. Well, mm. he basically said, I will not vote for a convicted yeah. felon, whoever it is. And he, the question was about Trump. You're very close to Mitch McConnell, for example, former advisor. Can you see words like that coming out of his mouth and Republican leadership's mouths in the House and the Senate? I don't think they are going to, for McConnell, he has studiously avoided commenting on Trump since his floor speech in the second impeachment trial. And his last words on this were uh, the criminal justice system and the civil justice system will have something to say about a former president and, and we'll have to let that process play out. What's happening right now? So do I expect them to go out and play pundit on this as these trials unfold? No, but it is obvious to me that Trump is already in a difficult way in terms of a general election voter sample. You throw a felony conviction on top of it, it makes it very difficult to see how, you know, if you, if you 
I mean, is there anything about this that would have made someone who leaned against him before lean into him this time? Donald Trump has brought the Republican Party to a slow boil, much like a frog in a pot, right? Like, you don't realize, I don't think, the majority of Republicans how bad this is, right? Even if he was to figure out a way to win the nomination, which the polling shows that that seems likely, Mm -hmm. then to win the actual general election, which I don't think is likely, but then what would he govern like, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're so close to disaster. And we have somehow normalized mugshots. And, and it's, we're going to have to flip the script here. Normally, America leans into leaders to lead us through this. We're going to have to start from reverse leadership. The voters are going to have to. Republicans are going to have to grab a hold of this. Local county commissioners are going to have to grab a hold of this party and to change the direction of it, or else we might lose it forever. But this slow boil is why I don't understand why you believe that voters won't vote for him if he's convicted. Because the temperature is still going up. The frog is still alive in the pot. If you think that these polls show that they're not going to vote for him once he's convicted, you could ask them two years ago. They probably would have said then that they're not going to support him in the position he is in now. I don't know. I, I think more Republicans than you think, including people who have no intention of voting for him right now, believe he's getting a raw deal. I mean, massive numbers of Republicans think he has been pursued, hounded, politically persecuted, whatever you want to call it. They have no intention of supporting him ever again, but they do believe that. So there is an undercurrent of that already. But the people who decide elections are sort of, you know, independent, center-right independents in the suburbs, around Atlanta, around Phoenix, around Raleigh and other places. They do, I'm just, they are not going to vote for a convicted felon. They are not going to do it. I, this, this election cannot be a referendum on whether it's okay to be a convicted felon and the president. If you want to win, it has to be a referendum on Joe Biden. Every Republican I know wants it to be a referendum on Biden. I had the same thought as you, Victor, which is the goalposts keep moving, right? First it was, well, he's been impeached, but not accused of a crime. Now he's accused of a crime. I'll tell you what the, what's going to be said if he gets convicted. Let's say a conviction comes down April. He's accused Who of knows? 91 crime. Right, but let's say any of them. The response is going to be, well, he still has his appeal rights. And we think that trial wasn't held legitimately or whatever. It's, there's always going to be, well, not always, but certainly before the election, there will always be some other step in the there. The frog is also addicted to a drug called Donald Trump. And we may have to crash and burn as a party. We may have to really see how bad, bad gets before we mean? wake up. What does that look Because Judge Ludig, <clears throat> a very conservative legal scholar, right, um, said to us the other week, there is no Republican Party anymore. Mm. What does crash and burn look like? I think, I mean, there is, right? For I mean, if, if you look at the polling, 35% of folks are, are addicted to Donald Trump and they seem to be running the party, but there's still 65%. 50 million Republicans that are wanting to ask tough questions and want genuine leadership. And to your point, they want to go beat Joe Biden, who, by the way, is the most easily beatable president maybe in history right now. And we we just don't seem to want to wake up to the easy facts. And he's still 35 points ahead of his closest rival in the primary. Uh, Ellie, Scott and Jeff, thank you so much. Did President Trump's arrest steal the spotlight from some candidates who were on the rise after Wednesday's GOP debate? We'll discuss the state of the race next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And I think they overcharged this case by having 19 defendants. She's counting on 16 of these defendants, 15 of these defendants pleading guilty and becoming state's evidence against Donald Trump. I'm not sure that's going to happen in a case like this. This is not, um, you know, RICO has to do with organized crime. Um, If this is a crime at all, I think it's a disorganized crime. That was Republican Congressman Ken Buck, a former prosecutor, telling Jake Tapper last night that he thinks District Attorney Fonnie Willis overcharged with RICO. 
Joining us now is former Fulton County Senior Assistant District Attorney Charlie Bailey. He previously worked with Fonnie Willis on a past case that brought RICO charges. Also with us, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Uh, Mr. Bailey, let me start with you and your thoughts on what we heard from uh, Congressman Buck there. Well, all due respect to uh, the congressman, I don't, I don't think he knows as much about RICO prosecutions as, as Fonnie Willis. Um, you know, how good or bad criminals are at attempting to commit their crimes doesn't determine whether they get charged uh, with a conspiracy. And what's clear in this case is you had several, call them mini conspiracies going on, all towards the same end, which was to alter the electoral votes sent to Washington, D.C. Uh, from the state of Georgia. And so uh, what, you know, Fonnie's position here as the elected uh, district attorney of Fulton County, uh, largest county in the state, uh, containing the uh, capital city of our state, um, is to protect the people of Georgia. And the actions that were taken by these different individuals violated the law, but more importantly, uh, violated the rights of the people of Georgia, and she's standing up for them and calling it like it is um, and holding them accountable. So, uh, John, the, the big event that happened, obviously, yesterday, the president turning himself in. We're looking ahead to arraignments uh, in early September. What are the concerns uh, from a security perspective as we look ahead to, to that flurry of activity? I think yesterday was a dry run about getting him in and getting him out, um, and that all went uh, just as timed. Uh, and without incident. Uh, the issue with the arraignment is how many people are going to be at that arraignment? You have people who are looking to sever, uh, but at this point, you know, you're, gonna, you're potentially going to be arraigning a lot of people. So it just further complicates it. But this is something I've been planning for for a long time. So they're ready. Yeah. Um, Charlie, to you, the October 23rd trial date, uh, this was, of course, prompted by the speedy trial request of Kenneth Chaseborough. Uh, D.A. Willis then picked this day to judge approved it for just him. Take us inside that office, what it looks like now that um, this is happening in two months. Well, no one funny as I do, they were ready to try this case um, well before they indicted it. They know more about this case and its evidence than any of the criminal defense attorneys. That's why it's quite the gamble to file a speedy trial demand, as uh, Mr. Cheeseborough's attorneys have done. So they're getting ready for trial, um, and they're going to be ready for trial. And, and whether that'll be just Mr. Cheeseborough, whether it'll be the whole thing, whether it'll be some others with him, that'll be determined by the judge. Um, but you don't, bring, you don't bring any case without being ready for trial. You certainly don't bring this case. And Fonnie Willis doesn't bring cases like this without being ready for trial when they indict it. Uh, we're just a, a few within four hours now, John, from the uh, deadline for everybody to turn themselves in. There are two people outstanding. There's one who spent the night inside the Rice Street uh, jail, and that's Harrison Floyd, who is the leader of Black Voices for Trump. Why is he still there? So he may be spending more than the night. Um, He's got two problems, a little one and a big one. The small problem is apparently he didn't go to the courthouse with his attorneys ahead of time to arrange bond and then go to the jail simply to be processed. He showed up as someone that the district attorney had a warrant for in this case who had not arranged bond. So Once you're in the jail without that prearranged, 
that means you're going to have to wait till you can go before a judge and make that bail application and arrange bond and so on. That's the little problem. The big problem is he popped for a warrant when they run those prints um, at the jail. He's wanted by federal authorities for not appearing in a case in Maryland where two FBI agents working in the Jack Smith probe, mm. not the Fulton County probe, served him with a grand jury subpoena and he allegedly assaulted one of them. He says they didn't identify themselves. They followed him up the stairs of his house. He didn't know who they were. He told police allegedly they were lucky they weren't shot. Um, the FBI alleges they identified themselves. He chest bumped one of them, um, knocking him backwards. But either way, he didn't show up in court. So even if Bond is arranged in this case, um, he's probably going to be held until he's turned over to federal authorities in Atlanta wow. to be transported for that, for that case. So he's in for a while, probably. I think he's got the weekend at least, unless, unless they pull all this together um, in a different way. Charlie, last question for you. Uh, D.A. Willis has been uh, labeled as a partisan and therefore this uh, indictment as partisan in, in part because of a fundraiser that she held uh, for your campaign for lieutenant governor. Uh, you were running against the current lieutenant governor, Burt Jones. Do you regret that fundraiser? No, I don't regret that fundraiser. No more than I regret fundraisers that many of my friends uh, helped me with. I mean, the bottom line, uh, Victor, is, is Fani endorsed me and was supporting me before I even got in the lieutenant governor's race when I was running for attorney general, before Burt Jones was running for lieutenant governor. Her support for me, her giving me money, hosting a fundraiser, doesn't have anything to do with, with anything other than that we're friends and we work together and she believed in me. Um, but, you know, the judge made the decision the judge made and that's his call to make. Um, but nothing about Fani's case has changed. I mean, she's been following the evidence since she said she started this investigation and she brought the charges uh, that she brought. And, and I think, you know, when, when we sit here and we talk about, okay, Democrats can't, you know, uh, indict Republicans and Republicans can't indict Democrats, we're really straining into, uh, or straying into authoritarian territory. Um, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your political party. The only thing that matters in, under the rule of law is what you did or did not do. Yeah, I will uh, add here the context of that Burt Jones was one of the alleged fake electors uh, as he is now a uh, lieutenant governor and you were uh, running against him. I appreciate, appreciate your time, uh, Charlie Bailey and John Miller. Always good to have you. Thanks. Victor. Thank you. Poppy. Fascinating conversation, important questions. Okay, ahead for us, a special report, a conviction integrity unit in the Queens District Attorney's Office reinvestigating cases, securing the release of more than 100 people wrongfully convicted. One of those, Shamel Capers, who had his murder conviction vacated after spending eight years behind bars. I was just worrying about not being able to be there for my mom. So me not being there, I feel like almost like I felt and I didn't even do anything wrong. Those three men you just heard of, they just spent a combined 56 years in prison for crimes the district attorney in Queens, New York, now says they did not commit. Their convictions were overturned yesterday after newly discovered evidence was found by a specialized team within the Queens DA's office called the Conviction Integrity Unit, or CIU. 
The same CIU has now won over 100 wrongful conviction claims since it was started just three years ago. And one of those cases was the case of Shamel Capers, who spent eight years behind bars, starting at just 16 years old. For Capers and his mother, it has been a long road to justice. My first night was one of my longest nights. I'm just in shock. Shamel Capers was 16 years old when he was arrested, charged with the murder of a teenage girl, and convicted. He was sentenced to 15 years to life behind bars. I don't even know how to use the phone just to call my mom. What is it like hearing Shamel describe what he went through? It's hard. It's hard. It hurts. Of 2013, 14-year-old Deja Robinson was riding a city bus just like this one home from a Sweet 16 party. Then 11 bullets were indiscriminately fired into the bus and one hit her right in the head. She died right here on the street corner. Deja's a happy, spoiled little girl, loving. She was so friendly, she was kind. Prosecutors believed Capers was involved in this gang-related shooting that killed Robinson even though Capers insisted he was never in a gang. Did you shoot at the bus? No, not at all. Did you have a weapon ever that day? No, not at all. While Capers was in New York's most notorious prisons, Rikers Island and Sing Sing, his mother, Tide Leak, was desperate to prove his innocence. We had so many phone calls, so many visits. When they took me away from her, it was like, one of, it was one of the hardest things for me. I was just worrying about not being able to be there for my mom. So me not being there, I feel like almost like I felt, and I didn't even do anything wrong. Deja's mom said this in court. Just because you're going to jail, that's not justice for me. You still get calls, visits, but me, my daughter is dust right now. I have to go to the cemetery. I totally understand her pain. I, I really do. I totally understand. But now look at it. Look at what, look what me going to jail caused for my family. Look at the scars that my family have faced now. It was Caper's mother's persistence that would eventually lead prosecutors to take a second look. I just started reaching out to programs, different lawyers, a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts. Attorney Winston Pays is a partner at the international law firm Debevoise in Plimpton. The firm took on Capers' case pro bono. Why did you say yes? I said yes because, one, as a former prosecutor, I can evaluate evidence. I thought the evidence uh, on which he was convicted was weak. The prosecution's case. The prosecution's case. Hayes would convince a new unit within the Queens District Attorney's Office called the Conviction Integrity Unit, or CIU, to re-examine Capers' case. We have four attorneys in our Conviction Integrity Unit whose sole responsibility it is to reinvestigate old convictions. Since 2007, CIUs have been slowly emerging across the country. We created the Queens' first Conviction Integrity Unit. Nearly all voluntarily established by elected prosecutors. The average American doesn't even know these units exist across the country. Why do they matter? Because you have to have confidence that a criminal justice system is willing to admit when mistakes are made. Why did you take up Shamel's case? Shamel Caper's case came to us through the defense attorney who said that the eyewitness 
to Shamel Capers being involved in this shooting had recanted their testimony. Now, we don't take recantation of testimony easily. We corroborate it, we investigate it. That eyewitness pointed to proof he lied. He told investigators about recorded phone calls he made to his own mother from jail. On these calls, the prosecution's key witness confessed that he never saw Capers shoot at the bus. These phone calls, the proof, happened before Capers even stood trial. Capers and his attorney would not discuss the key witness, and CNN could not reach that person for comment. Do you believe police suppress the evidence or phone calls, recorded phone calls, sat in an evidence locker and no one listened? Or no one knew about them until your team went and found them? Do you know? I, I, don't, I don't know exactly. I know that we turned over all the evidence that we had at the time. After the discovery of that evidence, Capers' conviction was vacated eight years after he was imprisoned. Do you think you'd still be in jail if it were not for the Conviction Integrity Unit? Yes, I would still be fighting. Deja Robinson's mother opposed vacating Capers' conviction, calling it a travesty of justice. She still believes Capers was one of the shooters that killed her daughter. She declined an on-camera interview, but told CNN in a statement that she felt excluded from the CIU investigation and said, we are the victims here, not Shamel Capers. What about victims' families who say this is not justice for them? I can't speak for someone suffering. It is an awful thing to lose a daughter. I do believe that the person who shot Deja Robinson is doing time for that crime now. Hey, come, let me show you something. On November 17, 2022, Shamel Capers was free. Daddy! <laughs> out of prison and to his nine-year-old daughter's school to pick her up for the first time. I love you, man. I'm never going to leave you again. She was only five months old when her father was incarcerated. She was so surprised. She, she started crying. Tears of relief now, after so many tears of heartbreak. A mother who didn't give up and a legal system willing to take a second look. How you doing? How you doing? How you look very familiar. Yes. I just recently got exonerated. <laughs> this is just like the start. One thing I could promise them, every day that I breathe freedom, fresh air, I'm going to make them proud. An update for you. Shamel Capers has been free now for nine months. He is writing a book about what he went through. He's also taking construction classes. I want to note that same Conviction Integrity Unit that re-examined his case has worked to vacate over 100 others. The DA says 86 of those vacated convictions were connected to a small group of detectives who were later found guilty of perjury and falsification of documents, none of them directly related to Caper's case. And also a note of deep gratitude to my colleagues Matt Renard and Will Simon for their tireless effort to bring you this story. We are joined now by Mark Howard, a civil rights lawyer who has represented over 30 clients in wrongful convictions. He is a professor of government and law at Georgetown, where he is the founding director of the Prison and Justice Initiative. He's also the founder and president of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice. Mark, thank you for being here. Sure. For people watching this who think, finally, justice because of these units, you say not so fast. 
Well, it's a beautiful story. I'm so happy for Shamel Capers. I've been involved in multiple exonerations and prison releases, and I'm just so overjoyed for him and his family. But the problem is that we have such an epidemic of wrongful convictions. Uh, serious scholarly estimates say that roughly 5% of all convictions are of the wrong person. With two, over 2 million people in prison, that's 100,000 people. So to have an isolated incident like that is a wonderful story, but we need to look at all the people whose cases we're never hearing about. And the problem with conviction integrity units is that it's the very same office that actually contributed to the wrongful conviction that we're asking to review itself. So while I applaud the Queen's DA, Melinda Katz, and she's done a tremendous job in this case and in many others, the problem is that the CIUs all around the country, most of them are doing absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So they've set up an office. There are 97 of them, but 46 haven't had a single exoneration. And most have had one or two. Her office has had over 100, which is really remarkable. But what's troubling is that they give this false pretense that there's a serious review taking place. And for the people who just get ignored, and I'm involved in a case in Chester County, Pennsylvania, where we've for 16 months have been trying to get them to look at a case. They wouldn't even respond mm -hmm. and acknowledge receipt of our case. And the evidence is sitting there ready to be tested. And it's been there for 24 years. We can't get a response. So it's troubling that many DA's offices are starting to create something that's giving the illusion of serious mm -hmm self-review, but there's no autonomy, there's no independence, and often there's very little fairness. Because in some ways, this is a conflict of interest. Exactly. Because when you expose that this case was mishandled, then you're exposing the lack of care, the mismanagement of the case within the office. Exactly. Because the vast majority of proven exonerations by DNA had prosecutorial misconduct. So you're asking the very same office, often the very same people. It might have been their own cases or their colleagues. And so what's the incentive there? So, Typically, it's to oppose testing, oppose review, oppose new evidence, oppose release. So that's why this debate is a good one, and I'm glad we're having it. I'm going yeah. to push back on you a little sure. bit. I just want to note, in Shamel's case, it was a different DA and a different team of prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So the that's new critical. DA comes in and says, we have to take a look. Yeah. But are you letting, Mark, the perfect scenario where we get equal justice under law, are you letting the perfect be the enemy of the good? No, I want there to be more conviction integrity units, but I want them to have independence, autonomy, fair review. So it could be by appointing people who are former defense attorneys, appointing people from the Innocence Project and other organizations like mine. That people work. like you. Exactly. I, I would have more faith if I knew that there were people who understand the real nature of wrongful convictions, who actually have had a stake in exonerations to look at the misconduct in that very office. Instead, they just sort of put a wall around and say, trust us. I'm not going to trust the very same people who put countless, we're talking now, you know, over 100,000 people in prison for crimes they didn't commit. That is deeply troubling if you care about truth and justice. It, and it, I don't think they're getting at it. Is now. anybody getting it right? Well, I think Philadelphia, actually. They've had many exonerations in Larry Krasner's office. I think in Queens, I really applaud this work that they've done. They actually hired a former attorney from the Innocence Project who's leading up the conviction integrity. So in my view, it's actually not a coincidence that that office is having more exonerations. Most of them, it's just one of their line prosecutors who's suddenly in charge of actually policing essentially themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in the smaller counties out there that we don't hear about, it's just injustice being compounded with this false pretense of review, and people are just getting buried, ignored. My mailbox is full of letters from people in prison begging to get their cases looked at. I look at as many as I can. We've been able to find so much more of a complete picture of truth and in few cases actually achieve justice. But honestly, working with conviction integrity units as they exist now mm -hmm. has been 
really uh, an exercise in despair. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know. And thank you for that story. Thank it was you, important to hear Schmel's story. Mark Howard, thank yeah. you. Thank you. For we appreciate me. it very much. Vladimir Putin makes his first remarks since the man who led an armed rebellion against him reportedly died in a plane crash. We'll take you live to Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin is memorializing Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin as a talented man who made serious mistakes. His first public comments come just one day after the mercenary chief's presumed death in a fiery plane crash near Moscow. I knew Prigozhin for a very long time, since the early 90s. He was a man of difficult fate. Russian officials say flight data shows the plane reached 28,000 feet before it stopped transmitting. Prigozhin's apparent death comes exactly two months after he led that brief armed uprising against Russia's military leaders. Seeing as Matthew Chance is live in St. Petersburg, uh, there near a memorial for Prigozhin. Uh, Matthew, Putin also said that Prigozhin was a man of difficult fate. Tell us more about these remarks. Yeah, I mean, he, he said he had a difficult fate, and that's often a sort of euphemism in Russia for somebody who's had, you know, a hard life. He had a criminal past. Of course, Yevgeny Prigozhin was in jail for some years uh, during the Soviet era. Um, and so it was, a, it was a reference to that. Uh, Putin also said that Prigozhin in his life, although he was a talented businessman, made some serious mistakes. Now, he didn't direct, directly reference uh, the leading of an armed uprising against the Kremlin two months ago, but clearly, that was a, in retrospect, huge mistake by Yevgeny Prigozhin. But you can see he's very fondly remembered here in St. Petersburg in the sense that there's this makeshift memorial that sprung up here in his home city. It's right outside the, the Wagner headquarters from where all their operations were basically controlled here in St. Petersburg. Um, it's not a huge thing, uh, but there are memorials like this popping up all over the country in various cities from where Wagner drew it's mercenary fighters. There's a photograph here. I've, I've showed it to you before. I'll show it to you again. It's Yevgeny Prigozhin carrying a weapon. And it says, in this hell, in Russian, in this hell, he was the best. Um, so talking about him very much in the past tense, even though we haven't had it officially confirmed yet that he is actually, you know, his body was actually in, in that wreckage. Um, you can see the flowers here, the, the arm patches from the the Wagner group that people have put here. You're seeing all sorts of people come. And I think you, you spotted a few earlier. There's a sort of slow trickle of people, members of Wagner, family members of people who are in Wagner, and just generally people who, you know, kind of agree with some of the, some of the controversial remarks that Prigozhin made about, um, about corruption in the Russian armed forces. He was very critical of that, particularly in the last several months. This is interesting. Look, it's a, it's a hammer, ah, very heavy indeed, a sledgehammer. And it's exactly this kind of tool has become the symbol of, of Wagner, a symbol of the extreme violence the organization used because it was with a hammer like this that um, somebody they regarded as a traitor was executed horrifically on camera. And it really bolstered you know, Wagner's image as this extreme, violent, hyper-patriotic group that would do anything for uh, the motherland, as they, uh, they call Russia. You know, a lot of flowers as well, as I say, a lot of people around the country coming out and, and, um, and doing something similar. You can see this lady here is about to put some, some flowers uh, down uh, as well. And you're seeing this, as I say, all over the country. The question is really, 
you know, will Rivernik Prigozhin now be forgotten? Or will he become a martyr? And will it sort of fuel sort of dissent and criticism of the Russian armed forces? And we just don't know the answers to that yet, Victor. Matthew Chance there in St. Petersburg with the reporting. Thank you so much, Matthew. All right, Donald Trump marks his latest arrest with an X. We'll explain. Harry Anton here with this morning's number ahead. Welcome back. Former President Trump has made a surprising return to X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, posting his mugshot after being arrested last night at the Fulton County Jail. Harry Anton has this morning's number. What is it? All right, this morning's number is... 958 days because Trump uses X for the first time in 958 days. He hadn't posted on X or tweeted for those old fashioned of us since January 8th of 2021. So why did he come back to X? Why is he finally posting on the site formerly known as Twitter? And that is because there are a lot more people on this platform than Truth Social. So Trump, of course, posted the mugshot post. This is the number of likes. Look how many likes there were on Truth Social. Just about 45,000. I just checked this no more than 30 minutes ago on X, formerly known as Twitter. Look how many there are. About 1 million. 1 million. That is more than 20 times as many people who are liking the post on Twitter than on Truth Social. So this gives you an understanding of what's going on there. But it's not just about people. Yeah. We're covering this segment right now, yes. aren't we? It is about the media. And if we look here, the social media sites journalists use the most or the second most in their job. I can't believe we actually have a poll on this, but apparently we do. From Pew. From Pew, a legitimate research firm. <laughs> X, Twitter, look at this. 69%, 69% say they use it the most or the second most. That's more than Facebook. That's far more than LinkedIn at 19%. So this isn't just about getting the attention of people in the regular world. It's about getting the attention of the media as well. And as this segment demonstrates, he has very much done so. There's obviously a lot of interest in this. What are people most interested in? Yeah. So if we look at Google searches over the last 24 hours related to Donald Trump, perhaps not surprising, mugshot is number one. I mean, that's we have the photo of it right there. We're going to know that mugshot for a very long period of time. Arrest in prison. Number two, again, that makes sense. Maybe a little surprising, but not really. The Tucker interview comes in at number three and something that I'll leave to other people to discuss, the height and weight of Trump at number four. He That's lost been, 24 pounds. Yeah, he, he, he... I'm serious, I read it. He, he lost 24 pounds. There's some issues as to whether he's 6'2", or 6'3". I can't believe uh, people were searching that. People were searching it. People you, were, you don't believe that, really? I guess I believe it. Okay. I, I, I mean, people are always interested in that type of stuff. People like the tabloid stuff. But again, I think the mugshot here being number one is something that yeah. really gives you an indication of where the interest is. There was a lot of interest, and that was why a lot of people didn't want the mugshot to be taken. But it was, and it was searched number one. All right. Harry Enton. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Sometime within the next three hours or so, the last two of Donald Trump's 18 co-defendants must surrender at the Fulton County Jail. Our crews are live at Fulton County with more on what comes next. CNN's coverage of this historic moment continues.
We handcraft every Stearns & Foster using the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming inner springs for a beautiful mattress and indescribable comfort. For a limited time, save up to $800 on select Stearns & Foster adjustable mattress sets. Being middle class right now, it's tough making ends meet, for sure. Republicans in Congress say if we just cut taxes even more for the biggest corporations, the money will eventually, someday, trickle, trickle down to you. Right. Joe Biden would rather just stop those corporations from charging so damn much. Capping the cost of drugs, like insulin, cracking down on surprise medical bills, and all those crazy junk fees. There's more work to do. Tell the president to keep lowering costs for middle-class families. The reason Donald Trump's dominating the race, what he did for us, and what he'll do for us. He secured our border, sent 5,000 troops to stop drugs and criminals. But Joe Biden screwed it up. Drugs are flowing into our neighborhoods, killing kids. President Trump will secure our border again. Plans to declare war on the cartels and destroy them like he did ISIS. President Trump will keep us safe. Make America Great Again Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. It's because of TikTok that I had to go out and get a website. I'm at a point now where I've outgrown my house. Growing up, every time I'd get out of the shower, I would itch. My first experience with goat milk soap, it kind of was like a light bulb moment. TikTok is a fantastic platform for DIY. If you'd have told me three years ago that I would own my own business and be expanding into a separate building, I would have told you you'd lost your mind. Hit it! and get a $50 Best Western gift card. Book now at bestwestern.com. It's just like a shot out of a cannon. I am the king of rock and roll! Little Richard's lyrics were too lewd to get airplay on the radio. They were just as clean as you were. Michael was inspired by me. Prince James Brown, I discovered him. Jimi Hendrix was my guitar player. I used to stand on the desk and do Little Richard. Everyone was beholden to him. Richard, I am everything. Labor Day on CNN. I started experiencing ED. I knew I had to do something about it. You go online, you answer the medical questions. The medication is at my house within a couple of days. Because it is effective, I say I'm on a second honeymoon. Get started today with RexMD.com. If you had W-2 employees in 2020 or 2021, you could be eligible for cash payments of up to $26,000 per employee through the government's Employee Retention Credit Program. Find out if you're eligible at wondertrust.com. This is not a dryer sheet. EarthBreeze is a new type of laundry detergent that looks like this, dissolves quickly in any wash, and is totally plastic-free. Yep, no plastic jug. Learn more at earthbreeze.com. BetterHelp makes therapy accessible to all for a number of different reasons. Sometimes people are looking for that relatability. They're looking for someone who looks like them. Being able to share parts of your identity with your therapist can be really important. I'm Caitlin Polance outside the Fulton County Courthouse, and this is CNN. 92% of students in high-need schools can't afford essential school supplies. Subaru and our retailers are there to help by giving millions of dollars in funding, along with school supplies students need. 
We call it the Subaru Love Promise, and we're proud to be the largest corporate supporter of adoptaclassroom.org. It's just one of the reasons Forbes ranked Subaru the number one automotive brand for social impact. Subaru, more than a car company. CNN Heroes is brought to you by Subaru. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. California has the highest rate of homelessness in the country and often living among uh, the thousands of unsheltered people are their beloved pets. And while many try their best to take good care of their animals, they often struggle to provide them with the much needed medical care. So this week, CNN Hero has made it his mission to offer judgment-free veterinary care at no cost on the streets of California. Meet Dr. Quan Stewart. I've seen people give up their last meal for their pet, and people who have $3 for their name, and after I'm done with the treatment, they will try and give me that $3. This is your partner, obviously, huh? He's my best friend. They see me with my stethoscope and my bag. Uh, Yeah, you look good. This little dog was days away from dying. And then they start sharing stories about their dog and the history. He makes me feel good, and he loves me, (laughs) and I know he loves me. I can treat about 80% of the cases I see out of a really small bag. Oh, you do vaccines too? Oh, that's really cool. It's antibiotics, it's anti-inflammatories, flea and tick, heartworm prevention. It's all there. It's at no cost to them, it's free. I'm building a network of trusted volunteers, technicians, but hospitals and clinics we can go to, we can call on. Let me take a listen here. It doesn't matter what your situation is or what your background or past is. I see a pet in need, and I see a person who cares for them dearly who just needs some help. What a story. To see Dr. Stewart hit the streets to save animals and bring grace and dignity to those caring for them, go to CNNHeroes.com. Thank you for spending your week with us. It has been quite a week of news. We appreciate it. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and thank you for making the trip. You know, next time you invite me, make sure there's something happening for <laughs> right? us to do. There's no news. Right? There's nothing to do when I come Always here. a pleasure, my friend. Likewise. We're I've both on vacation next week. Taking a little bit of a break. See you after Labor Day. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.